welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Z9. This is the premiere track, We Don't Come In Peace, featuring members of Wisdom and Chains. This record is available now for pre-order at Fast Break Records. It comes out October 29th. I can't wait for this one. In the twilight times of Wisdom and Chains, the guys have gotten together. Some some have started a new project. Six songs. It's going to be available worldwide, CD, and on LP. Very, to, very, very limited amount of vinyl. Pick up Z9. This is pretty fucking awesome. And definitely within the vein of Wisdom with a little extra touches. And we're happy to have them. You can check this out at www.fastbreakrecords.com, Fastbreak Records on Instagram, and Z9 Band on Instagram. Excited about things coming up with the show, especially with our foray into the West Coast, which we start with this guest, Andy Rice. Before I get into it, go over some things. Um, Philadelphia hardcore and a lot of hardcore on the East Coast continues to shine. Those of you who support it and checked out the shows, we really appreciated. Bob Wilson came up big. We had to move some shows around. He made Philly Mocha happen last minute. Um, There was a wild show at Walmart Beach in Philadelphia. First show, Action News, Aaron Hurd, Mikey Balfalco. Um, lots still going on. If you are listening to this and there's stuff in your area, do your best to go. And if you're someone who's not feeling super comfortable about going yet, still echo. Reshare, post, let other people know. Maybe they want to go to the show. Um, everything we do, you can check out at phillyhardcoreshows.com, which is phillyhcshows.com. We have so much going on. It's fucking crazy. And um, talked a little bit about it last week. Keystone Holiday Jam. Tickets are going good. Bobby Wilson's FYA. It sold the fuck out. They just announced a pre-show, which features 100 fucking demons. That's going to be the night before the FYA kicks off. Make sure you guys go and support that, okay? Personally, we got a big weekend coming up. We're headed out to Pittsburgh today. Check out Code Orange, Dying Fetus, Year of the Knife, Machine Girl in Pittsburgh. Code has an insane fucking set planned. Very excited to be guests to be able to come check this out. Saturday, Shattered Realm, Raw Life, Street Struck, Sector. You don't remember we did the Raw Life and Sector tracks on an opening episode. Um, Street Truck, PA's Finest, and Shadow Realm back out there doing it. We got two shows, Gary, Indiana, Detroit. Can't wait to link up with all the old Detroit guys. Seeing a lot of people. Uh, can't wait to see John Provoke, Jeff G, Enzo, so many of the boys. It's going to be great to link up with old friends. So if you can make your way out to them shows, also Year of the Knife is playing in Altoona, Pennsylvania on the Saturday for those PA guys who don't want to go west. And then Code and Youth, uh, Year of the Knife, do some small runs uh, Saturday, uh, Sunday and Monday in Columbus and in 
Grand Rapids, Michigan. So check that out. Again, so much cool shit going on. We have so many shows in the works. I mean, just make sure you go and support things. People doing things, things happening. It's going to be the life's blood. If everybody backs up and falls back, some of these places where we're doing shows may not exist when everything is supposed to be quote-unquote safe and clear. So big shout-outs to all the bands from the very beginning who have been pushing forward. And for those bands who had to postpone shows, hey, man, it sucks. It is what it is. Fans, keep your tickets. Continue to support. So many great records came out this year. So many great records came out last year. So many big things planned. It's absolutely fucking fantastic. Um, And I don't want to keep going on about Philly hardcore shows, but you just check all our shit out. And and also locally, check your own shit out. And even if you're not in a band or not a promoter, echo. Tell everybody else. Reshare. Cost you guys nothing to put something up on a story about something cool that's happening in your area. And, um... I, I spoke again with Nate, and I and I think that a lot of the questions coming in that we didn't answer on last week are most likely the best answered if you listen to episode four of the At Neanderthal Society podcast. And he just dropped another one with an amazing person, Eddie Medina from Powerhouse. You got to check this shit the fuck out. But we have so many more people coming up on this show from the West Coast. Uh, obviously, 50-something episodes in. Um, limited amount of people from the West Coast so far on the show. So I want to correct it and get a little bit of a dive into some of the people that are impactful. Some of the people that have already been referenced on here. I mean, it's easy to do the who's who of the West Coast. But I think as we go in these little circles out from our first couple guests... Different people get mentioned, and I'm going to be bringing out some of the people that linked up or make sense, and I'm just really excited for it. So, Andy Rice, our guest tonight. Why are we listening to Andy? Well, there was a time when hardcore started shifting again in the mid-2000s. Uh, this is the this is the outset and the actually the beginning before this is hardcore, and then like when this is hardcore, and Sound of Fury kicked off, and a year later, your uh, United Blood kicked off. There was a different landscape than there is today, and due to the activities with Andy and his bands, which later gave him the information and understandings of how to book tours, he became a booking agent for so many fucking bands. I mean, at one point, it was like. Ceremony and blacklist it and have heart and dude, I mean the list goes on and on and I mean I'll forget more bands than I can remember. Obviously, Deport Dishonor, Ringworm. I mean, most of the bands from I'd say about 2004 until 2013, 14, 15. I mean, Cruel Hand. That's been his baby band since day one. I mean, there's so many fucking bands, but ultimately it's the impact he had in relationship to how he views being a booking agent and how it works in unison and in harmony with hardcore. And it's a unique take and something that you may have not heard elsewhere. So I felt personally like I wanted to have this story, not only because he's a good friend, but because there's some blanks that are filled in and a different perspective shown here. So without further ado, here is Clifford Andrew Rice. I don't know if I wanted to title this 
booking agent with a heart, which is kind of funny. But in general, this is a guy who has so much to do with how things were and put a lot of bands in great positions to move hardcore and their own bands forward. And I really hope you enjoy his story. So let's fucking go. Today's guest is Andy Rice. For those of you who were fortunate to see the cultural shift in hardcore back to a very DIY, I mean, all the bands that we talked about in the previous episodes with Bob and the rise of the fests, like posse numbers would turn into This Is Hardcore. United Blood would sprout, sprout out out of Richmond. Sound of Fury would come out of the wake of Sick with Cali. And along this, you know, resurgence and change in hardcore, eventually Andy would become someone who facilitated some of the best tours and shifted and maintained a big part of the culture towards some organization while not making it such a um, greedy, evil environment that many booking agents are usually played with uh, that term. In fact, Andy Rice is probably one of the better guys I've seen grow into becoming a booking agent. And we've been doing this podcast for over a year, and I always knew that he would be a guest. And I'm really happy that you're finally on the show. Thank you. I'm stoked to be here. I've been uh, listening to the podcast a bunch. And uh, I think in the back of my mind, I, I knew I was like, oh, man, one of these days, <laughs> this, is, this is going to happen. It's good. Yeah, like the, it, it it's, uh, comes down the line where it's eventually going to be your turn to get on here and tell your story. So um, let's start at the very beginning of where you were growing up what were you listening to what were your folks like like we need the full background here <laughs> um so uh, i was born in midland texas um and uh real early on uh, we moved from texas my, my parents met down there because my dad was a bricklayer um and back then uh, as he explained to me it was like a boom town so we went down there um met my mom at a party and uh hung out i was the result and uh, back then back then you uh you know, if you got a, a woman pregnant, you married her. That was just the way it was. And so um, I have a really uh, very, very like realistic, open relationship with my parents. And uh, and they told me very early on, like my dad, my, my favorite story to tell is my dad one time saying we were, we were working on a block job because I would lay brick or block with him, you know, to kind of make ends meet when I was younger. And I remember him saying one time, he's like, yeah, you know, thought about leaving a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, and I would just look at him like, what? <laughs> like, why, why are you talking? You know, just on the job, you know, bullshit talk. Um, and then, but on, on the same, in the same uh, kind of idea though, my mom's very much the same. And I remember her one time saying like, uh, you know, I knew your dad would leave. So I, uh, I had three more kids to lock him in for life. And I was like, oh, I was like, kind of told him, I was like, this is too much reality for me. I, I need you guys to like, you know, shelter me from a little bit of it. Um. But, uh, but yeah, that was kind of my, my relationship growing up with my parents. Um, and, uh, we eventually settled in Newburgh, Oregon. Uh, my dad grew up in Medford, Oregon and, um, you know, Newburgh was just for him close enough to the city, uh, for me and my brothers, I have three brothers and an older sister, uh, older half sister, uh, close enough to the city. It's about 30 minutes outside of Portland, Oregon. 
that he knew like we wouldn't turn into like weird redneck hillbillies. He was real. Uh, my dad was real adamant about that not happening. And, uh, which kind of fell into uh, how music kind of started happening. When uh, I was growing up, music was like everything in my house. I remember as early as like second grade, like my dad um, was really into like the clash and he didn't call it punk, but he called it like new wave. He was really into that stuff. He was into all sorts of music, but I remember very vividly listening to a clash record with him when I was like real small, like real small details. You remember when you were a child, and then um, uh, he got me into like Thin Lizzy and Black Sabbath. And then later on, um, you know, he was very proactive in getting into newer music, got me into Megadeth, Metallica, um, you know, just like, you know, the big four type stuff. Um, and then on the other end of that, my mom was really uh, into um, R&B and hip hop. And she did the same thing my dad did, would, got really into rap because she wanted me to like listen to all sorts of music. So I was getting it kind of from both sides. My parents, my, my mom on the more like hip hop rap tip, my dad, more metal, more rock. Um, so uh, yeah, that was just a big thing growing up. Like music was, was like life. Um, I don't think playing music was ever in the cards very early on. Um, later on in like sixth grade when I, I, uh, I joined band and I just did it because I didn't want to learn a foreign language. Um, and it was a cruiser course. I was like, oh, I'll be a percussionist, you know, just sit there and take up space. And, uh, my dad really took that and ran with it and was like, you're going to be a drummer. And, and I had a friend who wanted to start a band. So he went, got me like a hundred dollar drum kit and was like, you're going to play drums. And, and, uh, that became the focus of like everything in my family from then that point on, I have a brother who plays guitar professionally as a blues session player. Um, wow. Yeah. Very like, that is like a whole nother world. <laughs> like I've, I've, I've hung with them a couple of times and uh it's almost as fierce and like aggressive as like hardcore in the sense that like blues dudes don't fuck with non-blues dudes so whenever i'd go to a festival with them they're just like who who are you like why are you here <laughs> um i got a brother who plays bass uh, i have another brother who plays saxophone and piano and then my older sister she i found out later she uh my older half sister was touring with band, like groups like nonfiction and uh like mc search what yeah, she told me like years later. I was like, uh, I was like, I think I was listening to a Nas record or something with her, and she was like, "Oh yeah," and she's like thanked on credits, and she'd hang with them, and like that was her whole scene. And I remember like as a little kid hanging with her, she'd play like LL Cool J for me and like third bass, and I'm a little kid, so I'm just like, yeah, whatever, <laughs> you know. But um, yeah, music has always been like the most important thing in my family. My dad um, really took to me playing music and uh, uh, got me really motivated and got my brother to play guitar. My brother plays blues guitar. Um, he bought my brother a guitar at like seven uh, and just was like, you're going to be a guitar player. Gave my brother, other brother a bass. And then we ended up starting a family band. He tried to Jackson five us. And, uh, and then he took us into the city to play clubs. Uh, first club I played was Satyricon in Portland. Um, Hell yeah. Yeah. And at the time I didn't, what year, I didn't know. What year, what year was that? And how old were you? Just so we have a reference here. Fuck, I, I'm bad with the years. I was in seventh grade. Um, yeah, so like 12, something like that. Yeah, 12, 13, something like that. And um, my dad, my mom was, I kind of think knew this was going to happen. And so she was like, look, I don't I don't care like if you guys do it. But told my dad and told me like, no matter what, you have to go to school the next day. And like shows wouldn't start till nine. So I wouldn't be getting home till like two. And like high school starts at like, you know, I have to get up by like six thirty seven and be there by eight. So it was brutal those first couple 
years figuring it out. But um, my dad, I think, really was on to something. And I was playing like sports, like school sports here and there. But he put a, a kibosh on that real quick. And he's like, no, you're not going to play sports. I don't want you to become a football guy because uh, Newburgh was a very big football wrestling place. And he was like, you're, I, re- I remember what he said. He said, you're going to see what happens to your football friends. And I was like, okay. And, you know, fucking decades later, when I go visit him in town, like, I, it's, it sucks and it's sad, but I see the, the star running back or quarterback, like, sitting at the bar, you know, pounding drinks, you know, popping pills, like, just, you know, looks miserable. He's never left Newburgh or, you know, a big night out for him is going into Portland. You know, he's never traveled. And my dad really didn't want that to happen. So he, he really pushed us and, um, booked our, our first two shows one at satiricon and then the next one was with poison idea at uh this place called burbati's pan and i didn't know what poison idea was at the time because i was like in this weird gray area with music where i was listening just a little whatever was coming my way so i hadn't like dove into punk's past yet and uh yeah it was like very surreal being a kid they were like always they would always take care of us but they would shovel us away in a little corner somewhere because the novelty was that we were a bunch of kids on stage swearing you know and like you know, being little like brats. So that was kind of his, uh, that was a lot, a lot of the appeal. And then, uh, I remember I just like, Hey, I want to do more of that. And he just goes, uh, okay, well, here's their numbers. Call them. And that was it. And so then the rest of the times we would go into city to play clubs. It was me calling them little last kid, like calling these dudes, like, you know, put my band on the show. It's like, Oh, I got a Monday open or Tuesday. Cause we never played weekends. It was like weekends were reserved for bands that made money. So, so, uh, just kind of kept doing that. Uh, eventually we played things like North by Northwest, which was like a South by Southwest offshoot. And, um, that was my first experience like with music industry stuff real early on. Um, and this is before I knew what hardcore was or anything. So, um, it was a good learning experience. And, um, my parents raised us, I, people say it was peculiar, but like my dad was like very much like against team sports. Didn't want me to hang out with anyone who's Christian. Uh, because Newberg uh, had a very, uh, as he refers to it, a very bad church problem. <laughs> and uh, and then on my mom on the other side wouldn't let us watch Disney movies. So <laughs> so it was very like, uh, hmm. w- when I talked to my mom later about it, she was like, uh, she said, she was like, that's the reason I did that was because, and your dad was like that. And you, I was like that. So like, we were always realistic with you. We didn't want people, we didn't want to raise people who weren't realistic. Uh, we wanted you to be survivors is how my mom puts it you know, she's like i want you to be a survivor i don't want to have to worry about you uh she was like you're a rice and that in like our small town like we were just troublemakers and she was like so i know you're going to get into it i just need to know that you know how to get out and not know and know that everything's not a fairy tale fantasy storybook ending because that's not real so the disney thing was kind of firm with her she was like she'd get mad at people when like they'd be like you let my son watch fucking you know, the Lion King, what the fuck? <laughs> and I'd be like, I don't see what the big problem is here, but I get it now. She just, everyone in that small town lives and breathes in that small town and they never leave. And, and, and to a degree, like mentally, I was kind of there too. You know, like I remember in high school telling someone, I was like, Oh, I'm going to do the band thing for a while. And, and then like, I'll probably drop out of high school. I'll just lay brick for the rest of my life and probably have a couple kids and just live and die in Newburgh. I, I was like already ready for that. And music kind of provided the vehicle uh, for that to not happen. So um, music initially and then hardcore later was like the real vehicle that got me going. But yeah, that was kind of growing up. And then uh, 
hardcore was funny because I, I first listened to hardcore when I was in eighth grade. I, I stole a victory style records comp and uh, the first two bands that popped up or that I would listen to, I remember listening to was Snapcase's Caboose and Strife's Force of Change. And I'd already listened to some punk, some metal, um, a lot of hip hop, a lot of rap. Uh, but the, I remember like when Caboose started, I was like, this is the fucking heaviest shit I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> like this is like blowing my mind. And I'm on a school bus and I'm listening to it. And I'm like, Jesus, this is crazy. And I had no, I, I, I remember, I pr- I'm sure I stole it cause it looked cool. You know, I was just like, Oh, this looks cool. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to steal this in. Uh, and it just was like, I, I didn't know what to do. I wanted to do that, but I didn't have the infrastructure to do it. And there were some older kids that I started hanging with who were in a band called Scouts Honor that were going into the city and playing shows with like AFI and like Sick of It All. They were like the, the, the one band from Newburgh that was actually doing shit. So I latched onto them real quick and they started taking me into the city um, once, you know, like between family band, you know, club shows. And they kind of showed me like, oh, this is this other thing. You know, this is what this is. I hadn't identified it as hardcore yet, and I wouldn't do that for a couple of years. Um, but I, you know, was just like, go to these shows, punk shows, hardcore shows. But for me, it was all music. It was all the same thing. Um, and so I really wanted that. So uh, eventually, I, I, I dabbled around in Newburgh with some musicians here and there. And then uh, eventually got out of that. Um, you know, played some punk bands and uh, like a punk rockabilly band for a while and did some cool stuff. But really uh, what it was, was I, I knew I needed to get out of Newburgh and play with musicians outside of there. So I put an ad in this local uh, online thing called King Banana and said, uh, aggressive drummer looking to be in a band like uh, Snapcase and Countervale because somehow Countervale made its way into my, my scope and uh, got hit up by this dude. Uh, named uh, Matt McDonald, and he wanted to start a band. He he was in a band with two other guys. They needed a drummer, and um, met up with him. And he lived even farther out. He lived out like the coast or something. So we drove into town, and the same day we played for the first time, Darkest Hour was playing with Phobia in in town that night. And so he um, we we played it totally clicked, and we started uh, what would become Inked and Blood, was which was my first like hardcore oriented band. And he was the one who took started taking me to shows on the regular, introducing me to people and uh, explaining what like hardcore was, what straight edge was, like all these things that I was I was seeing and experiencing, but I was getting it through the filter of a small town. So nobody was there to be like, this is what this is, you know, and this is how you do this. And so I I get brought into this situation and I'm just like wide eyed. I'm like, holy shit, this is awesome. Like I'm stoked and you know, I'm seeing shows in small event and like really small clubs and VFW halls. And I remember how stoked I was seeing like moshing, like hardcore dancing for the first time. I was like, fuck, this is fucking awesome. You know? And, uh, and from there did Inked and Blood for a while. And that was like my first, uh, real run with touring, like, uh, booked a, booked a West Coast, a really bad West Coast tour. Um, thankfully Mike Hood was, uh, helped me out like a ton on that. Uh, he just randomly calls. I, I think I, I called him and he calls me back and he was like, yo, I like your band. What do you need? He booked me like four shows just in random places. Um, but that was my first encounter with like, you know, for lack of a better term, like hardcore celebrity person, you know, like, oh shit. Cause I was like, my friend Matt had got me 
and like gave gave me a bunch of CDs, a bunch of bands to listen to. One of the ones that really stuck was the hard the the Hoods Alone EP. I thought that was like I still think that's like one of the best fucking EPs. And uh, Mike really like stepped up and was like, "Yo, here's a show in the Bay. Here's a show in Sac. Here's a show in Fresno." And um, and I, I you know it's funny I was telling someone the other day I don't think he got enough credit for a lot of the help he he provided because he would he would help me out later on when like tours would fall through shows would fall through you know i remember once on tour with physical challenge he let us play west coast worldwide like four times in a week because we were trapped in sacramento so that's uh that's that that was a that was the same thing for punishment it was the same thing for shadow realm was same thing for dysphoria and i and i i'll totally echo exactly what you just said that mike hood is probably by design of his chaotic internet presence today overlooked for the amount of help and the bands that have come through and gotten help from Northern California because of Northern California because of Mikey. So I just wanted to uh, jump in there. Now this whole time I've been thinking about two things that you said, and um, it relates back to inspiration and inertia and the drive, you know, your, your, your family pushes you towards these things. And often I think sometimes you either gravitate to them because you're, exposed to them early and you're given access to them early or you reject it. And I find it interesting that your parents push you towards this kind of thing and you didn't reject it. You weren't like, I don't want to do this. No, you, you thrived in that. And then also into blood for those listening, it is a Christian uh, metalcore band. So, you know, on one hand they were like, no, don't, you know, we don't want you dealing with the God stuff. But on the other hand, you're in a Christian metalcore band. So, how did how did that suss out for you where you're like, oh, you know, I'm in this Godcore band, but I'm not really a God kid, you know, but it gave you the outlet your parents were looking for you to have, which was like touring and band stuff and not just being like a carbon copy of a small town kid. The the Inked and Blood thing didn't start out that way. That wasn't the initial idea. Um, it was just a, uh, initially we were I was just like, oh, we're just going to be in a band. Uh, it just happened to be like uh, at that point, I'm a little older. When Ink to Blood started, I think I was like 16, 17-ish. And um, at the time, I, I just I, – I, that stuff didn't really ever bother me. My my dad just was real, like, like protective in weird ways. And remember when I was even a kid, like real little, in like middle school, I'd bring a friend over and he'd be like, is that kid Christian? And I'd be like, I, I don't know. I didn't ask, you know. But um, it, real protective. But like with, with Ink to Blood, it, it wasn't meant to be like that. But at the time – the Northwest had like a huge Christian metalcore hardcore scene. And I mean, j- just in general, that shit was huge at the time. And, um, and I didn't, uh, I didn't really want it to go that way, but I also wasn't trying to like, you know, I also wanted to take opportunity and I didn't want to like rule out anything. And, and I never looked at any, any of those bands like differently. Um, it didn't become an issue until, uh, we started playing more shows with those bands and then eventually getting invited to play certain kinds of festivals. And, um, and when we would play these festivals, I was like, cool, you know, festival, whatever. I, I, I didn't look at like what was going on around it. I was like, cool, an opportunity to play. I just wanted to play drums. It wasn't until we played a couple festivals that it started to become awkward. Cause, um, my, my mom is Catholic. Um, my, my, my dad's indifferent, but my mom's Catholic. She, she had her own feelings about, religion and Christianity, but her faith was, I was raised in the mindset of faith is very much your own. And that was always her take on it. And, uh, so that was kind of like rattling around in my head when I'm doing these, these shows and these festivals, because a lot of those kids, those younger kids would come up to you and want to talk about that. 
and they were like, Oh, I want to talk about God with you. And they want to pray with you. And, and I was like super uncomfortable because I wasn't really, really religious. And I, you know, didn't also didn't want to fake it because I felt like that was wrong. And that stuff started to build up with Inked and Blood where I got real uncomfortable. And I, uh, we, uh, the band got hit up by Face Down Records to put out a record. And, and I knew it was just this, this ball was going to keep going and it was going to keep rolling. And, um, I was going to be put in a lot of weird, awkward situations. I also didn't want to like bum kids out, you know, some 13, 14 year old kid likes my, my band wants to talk about God and you know, what's my response going to be? Sorry, kid. I, I don't, you know, I don't fuck with that. You know, So, uh, I stepped away from the band and I, and I told him why I was just like, look, I, I feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, I, I don't want to lie to anybody. And, you know, and my mom's just rattling around in my head the whole time. Like, man, like I'd feel like an asshole lying to these kids. And I feel like an asshole in this situation. And I also saw a lot of stuff in that world that like really bummed me out. Like a lot of like hypocrisy where I was like, wow, this is fucking scumbaggy, you know? And if I'm going to, I've always been one of like, you know, if you're going to be a scumbag, just be a scumbag. You know, if you're going to be a, a criminal, be a criminal, you know, embrace it, embrace whatever you are don't, you know, shield it or cover it up with like a religion or veganism or straight edge. You know, it's like that. I feel like that's doing a disservice to, to a lot of people who take that shit very serious. And I think that was what was really like bothering me. I was like, I know there's people who take their, their faith very seriously. And I don't want to like insult people who like, you know, invest a lot of their time and, and like, you know, self in that stuff. So, so Inked and Blood, you know, I stepped away and uh, it was tough because I put a lot of work into it. And it was just like, fuck, you know, which would become a common theme throughout my life. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that was a bummer. But at the time, like towards the tail end of that, I started a uh, physical challenge, right? And started, I joined physical challenge. Uh, they were already a pre-existing band. Uh, they were based in Corvallis, uh, Oregon. And I had met those dudes. They were all going to college down there. And I met those dudes going to shows and they needed a drummer. And by this point, uh, I started going to a lot of different shows, a lot of, you know, going to like see bands like Bane and Striking Distance and, um, you know, just more straightforward, hardcore, less metallic. Uh, and at that point I was like, okay, cool. Like, uh, I think I want to do this. I think I've gotten like my metal core metallic hard, hardcore fix. I want to do something a little straightforward. And I remember Striking Distance was the catalyst for that. Um, they, I saw them open for Bane or they were like direct support to Bane. And that was like the, the bill was stay gold champion striking distance Bane. And I remember that was uh, that seeing that band was like, fuck, like I want this because at the time a lot of bands were popping off that had sh like sticks or gimmicks of some sort, you know, something going on. Striking distance was the first band that I can remember where it was just like dudes on stage, like pissed and like, and it seemed genuine and, Dave Bird is just like a fucking like monster on stage, you know, in like his presence. Like, I think that was, that was like a real game changer for me. And they were kind of the catalyst band for me getting into to, to exploring more so into bands like Slapshot, you know, uh, Madball bands that were just dudes that just like were playing heavy music and they were up there. No, no gimmicks, no fancy haircuts, no, no designer jeans, nothing crazy like that. I sound, I, I, it sounds ridiculous even coming out of my mouth right now. Like it's like, it should, like it should matter. But, but for me, that's kind of, I was looking for that. I was looking for something and striking distance were the conduit for, for me kind of exploring different kinds of hardcore um, and physical challenges where 
I was like, I felt like that was going to go. And so joined up with them and, and that was a real, that was probably some of my favorite times touring and being in hardcore was, you know, we signed with, we were the first release on rivalry records. Um, and I remember when we got signed, we played a show with damage done allegiance and uh, rosary and Kyle from damage done was like, Hey, you know, I'm starting a label. I like your band. Let me put out a record. And I was like, really, you know, like, okay, sick, you know? And that kind of started that phase, that, that part, that era of my life. And we would just go down to California, California all the time. We'd play West coast worldwide. We'd play Gilman. We'd always stay with Kyle at his house in Concord. And that's the first time I met like Doug Weber, uh, from Terror, Matt Wilson from set your goals. Um, uh, the first time I met Zach Nelson was at that house uh, from in control and, uh, 185 miles South. And, uh, it was just cool. It was simple at, at that time. I think I remember most about that era was everything was simple. It was like, go down, play shows. You know, the people who were doing the shows were going to take care of you. Didn't need to ask for money. Didn't need to ask for guarantee or food or nothing. It was just like, yeah, come down here. I'll take care of you. Uh, you know, you, you go to Gilman at the time, the people there were taking care of you. Uh, you know, you're going to play Bakersfield, Tehachapi, Andy Die Hard would take care of you. Um, Shea Cafe, same thing. It was just always, there was just like this, this, um, this uh, web of people all kind of under the same, you know, working towards the same goal, which was awesome. And uh, no drama. I don't remember drama. I don't remember anything back then. It was just like, this is awesome. Like, I'm going to go to California. I'm going to hang out. I'm going to come home and, you know, we're going to put out records and, uh, never went to the what, the East Coast, but I just had very pleasant pleasant memories of that. Maybe just being younger and being less like naive or uh, a little naive at the time, and less like you know older, jaded like I am now. <laughs> but um, eventually, when that band ended, it was uh, it was just over like time. We we did one tour that was just brutal, and then we ever had van problems and all sorts of shit. And eventually, we broke down in Mesquite, Nevada, and uh, which is like a little a weird little uh, casino resort town and uh that was kind of it that 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 tour broke us and talked to the singer and we already had like issues keeping members in the band so that was kind of the end of that era and um pretty much from there uh dabbled in some local bands and then eventually just got linked up with the guys in sinking ships who uh, i connected with because the their guitar player filled in for physical challenge on uh on a tour they needed a drummer and um that I, I think that's when things really started to, to move. And I remember joining that they were based in Seattle and I was living in Portland and it was just kind of like, let's do it. You know, packed up the little shit I had and moved up to Seattle and lived in someone's closet and toured with sinking ships for a number of years. And uh, that's when I started making a lot of uh, relationships I have now. Uh, like with you, I still have a print from the show we did at Philo Funk live that with kind oh, of stereo. <laughs> Yeah, um, let's break some of this down before we get into that era. What what you touched on is really important at that time because the mid two thousands was still right before, you know, like American Nightmare had just starting to break up. Um, things were shifting. There was um a focus away from actual hardcore bands being commercially viable because of stuff that you talked about with Christian metalcore blowing up. And the big rise of Warp Tour and a lot of the 90s era metalcore stuff that was coming from hardcore, the labels were pushing those bands towards a Warp Tour element. 
So all these fast bands that you're talking about, all this stuff is like considered like, oh, they sell a, they sell a paltry two thousand records. They're fucking useless. Yeah. At a time when you know the the music scene was blowing up, for you know whether it was if you want to document the, the the rise of Slipknot and the metal the new metal world and all this stuff happening. So you had this perfect time on the West Coast with all these amazing like organically growing fast bands. You mentioned Kyle Whitlow and rivalry records. And I mean, obviously that's a label whose overall discography is unquestionably one of the coolest from that time as well. So when you said that it would take six and ships for you to build relationships, I think all of this is just like a good foundation, like a background, like, you know, like uh, you needed this prerequisite time at Ink and blood you needed this prerequisite time, you know, the excitement from Physical Challenge. I remember the first time I heard that band, I'm like, oh, that's a fucking cool name for a band, like an untouched Double Dare reference, you know, like it's <laughs> fucking great. It's a, you know, for those listening who are younger, there's a TV show that was cool from Nickelodeon and Physical Challenge was as a little kid, something you ex- you were hoping there was a yes, Physical Challenge, you know, like, so it was a cool reference for a hardcore band and, um, because punishment was like a little bit heavier and stuff. We didn't get to play with all those bands, but we did get to meet Zach Nelson and play with in control quite a bit. Um, we were friends with rosary and I still have a, I think I still have a rosary crew shirt. Um, and because punishment and later shattered realm played all shows around the time in the West coast and the Northwest, we, I saw all that in the rise up. And I think that that's, probably a big foundational point to build off of what you would later get into when we start talking about singing ships and the shows and then what would later become, you know, when you start booking, you know? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Like sinking ships was, uh, I, I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but like sinking ships was like a, a lot of strange lessons to learn. Um, there, that was kind of my first taste of, uh, of seeing drama and, uh, and it was Ex- very. Do you have the ability to go into it, or you just want to gloss over it? I'll just kind of gloss over it. Um, I, I don't. I don't put a lot in. Oh no, like, it's all good. Oh yeah, I, I don't put a lot of faith in, or not, not a lot of faith, a lot of stock into it. But um, like I, I was coming in. Uh, I'm. I was a very. I'm a very reactionary person, and a very like like you know at that time especially a little less diplomatic and a little more like fuck you about things. And I remember, uh, you know, I got put in a position where I was like, hey, look, you know, this is happening. This is a thing. Uh, and if you want to quit, <laughs> like you can quit. And at the time I was like, well, I don't know this fucking dude. So fuck them. Like, whatever. We'll just do our own thing. You know, that was kind of a mindset. Like, we'll just go and do our own thing. Like, whatever. And uh, and it was because we had done a tour where I noticed some shit was happening. Bands dropping off, shows getting canceled. And and I, I wasn't booking for sinking chips. I was just playing drums. So I started noticing, but it didn't really phase me. And then I get put in this weird situation and I'm like, well, fuck that. I mean, no one's going to make me quit except me. And, uh, and that would later, like I, I, you know, start seeing that a lot more and like weird things. And I was like, this is dumb, you know, for such a, and at the, you know, like I still, I hold hardcore in such a high regard because, you know, not in like a, like, you know, hardcore is everything little kid way, but hardcore, you know, as you know, provided a vehicle for me to do a lot of things that coming from a small town, I would have never gotten to do. So when it seems like people are, are utilizing it incorrectly um, for like dumb drama and stuff. And don't get me wrong. I love, I love 
I love a good like beef, you know, here and there, but it it just like frustrates me, especially when a band's in its infancy. And, and, and like later on with Sinking Ships, like when we were touring, it was funny, like I started taking over the booking because I just wanted to keep going. You know, it's like we did our first East Coast tour with Shook Ones and that was, you know, huge for me. I never thought I would ever go to New York City, which is crazy to, to, to say. And people think that's like, why, why would you ever think that? Like, but like at the time, like I don't have money, um, you know, sinking ships. I'm still in the back of my mind the whole time. Anytime I'm doing something now, I think this could fall apart at any minute and I'll have to go back to Newburgh and lay brick. And, you know, I'll, at any minute, everything I have that's awesome will fall apart. And I always keep that in mind. And that's not being pessimistic, just me being realistic. And first time I go to East Coast, I'm like, I want to do this all the time. Like, so I started booking. I was like, I'm going to book us East Coast, US, West Coast. So like, and Sinking Ships toured a ton, uh, a lot of times on our own. And I'm a really firm believer in, in fuck with the bands that want to fuck with you. So we would do a lot of tours people would like kind of raise an eyebrow to and they'd be like wow. when we did uh the, the 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 first like real tour i booked the package tour i guess was with blacklisted and shipwreck and i remember getting a lot of weird comments from people it was like why are you touring blacklisted that's so weird you're a melodic hardcore band the truth be told like a lot of our peers like in our same like kind of scope of sound didn't want to tour with us and and it was like, I'm not going to beg, you know, or ask, you know, it's like, you know, uh, I, I like a lot of those dudes, a lot of those bands are like no problems with them, but they didn't want to tour with us. So, you know, Blacklisted wanted to tour with us, you know, uh, George from Blacklisted called me, uh, and was like, Hey, you know, you want to do, I heard you got a tour booked, you need a band, like, do you want to do a tour together? Or, you know, whatever. I, I forget exactly how it went down. Same thing with Shipwreck. Hey, Shipwreck wants to do a tour. You want to do it? Cool. Like, so we t- did that tour together. And it was like, you know, doing shows with guns up, doing shows with like heavier bands, more or less, and people just being weird about it. And I was like, well, these dudes don't want to tour with us. The bands that make sense don't, don't want to fuck with us. So I'm not going to beg. You know, I think the closest we got is we did some dates with, we did a tour, a U.S. tour with Have Heart. And, and I kind of saw that for what it was, you know, if I'm being, if I'm being totally honest here, like. I had the ability to book shows. They had the ability to book shows. It was an easy matchup. Um, I love all those dudes. I have nothing but love for them. And we have great relationships together and we had a good time. But uh, I'm sure that they looked at it like, oh, you know, if we put sinking ships on it, you know, Andy will book some of the dates. So, you know, there was, so there was a give and take. And I think, I, you know, I, I'm not one to be like to pretend that's not a thing. You know, it's like it just is what it is. And that was probably the closest we got, you know, beyond like doing one or two shows with like bands that were kind of similar. But I think it really like shaped us as a band and shaped my personality for like kind of seeing things for what I was in store for as an agent later, especially, but shaping up how things I was going to treat things as they came and how I was going to pursue things as like, you know, an adult. Now, how does, how does sinking ships shift into what comes next? Like, where do you go from there? So, uh, Sinking while I was in Sinking Ships, um, Trash Talk was based in Seattle at the time, and every, they had noticed like, oh, you're booking all these dates, and you know how to book a U.S. tour. Uh, will you book us a tour? So I just booked Trash Talk a tour, and then uh, Shook Ones was another one, and I was like, oh, maybe I can do this. I wasn't asking for money, and I wasn't booking tours how you're supposed to book them. Like I was just a hardcore kid contacting other hardcore kids, which back then it was no problem because like 
there was a person in every city. Like if you play Birmingham, Alabama, you contact Mike Parsons. He books you at Cave Nine, and that's what happens. And you know, or you good, play good dude to this day. Yeah, like Parsons, good dude. And you always knew who was doing what, and there were like almost like strategic, uh, like there were routes that kind of fell into play. But I wasn't asking for money or or food, like and and those guys probably didn't know how to do that either. You know, like it was just we were all helping each other out and kind of working towards the the same goal and uh and then eventually like uh sound and fury i want to was it 2007 was like the year that uh uh bob shed uh asked me if i wanted to book a tour for blacklisted cold world living hell and um i was i loved cold world i loved blacklisted i loved living hell and um and on top of that i'd already developed relationships with these guys so i booked them um a tour out to sound and fury and then a tour back. And, uh, there was another tour I booked, but I can't for the life of me fucking remember. Oh, that was the same year as the half heart sinking chips one. But, um, I remember at, uh, at sound and fury, um, Bean and George just the whole time being like, be our agent, be our agent, be our agent. And I was like, I don't want to be a fucking booking agent. I had met a booking agent by this point and he seemed like a miserable asshole. So I was like, I don't want to be a miserable asshole. And he was like, no, do it, do it, do it. And I think, I think Bean was like, yo, if you don't fucking book our band, I'm going to kick the shit out of you. (laughs) I was like, all right, well, I guess I don't have a choice. So, uh, so that was pretty much it. It was just like, all right, well, I'm going to do this. And then, uh, that was also the year trash talk, like kind of, kind of broke, I guess in a, in a way. Uh, cause back then festivals had sets. There, There was always one or two sets that were like, the, sh- the fest was great, but there was always one or two sets where it's like, oh shit, now we're switching eras into this band's era. And 2007 was trash talk. And, um, and so like I had all this like stuff happening and uh, I knew sinking chips was about to wind down. I-, I knew something was about to happen in the back of my mind. And what ended up happening is we got a, I quit because we got offered a mad ball sick of it all tour. And I was stoked because I, this is the first time I'm like booking a band, even if it's my own on a bigger tour. And I'm a huge Madball fan. I think Madball is like one of the best fucking hardcore bands on earth. And, and it makes sense. Anyone who knows me and knows my background in, in both hip hop and rap, and then also in metal, like Madball is like the perfect middle point band for me. <laughs> so, uh, so I was pissed because the band were like, well, we can't do that tour. We're not going to do it. And I was just like, okay, I quit. You know, that was it. I was like, like, I've, you know, done a bunch of shows for you guys. You know, we like nothing against these bands, but like we played with Lifetime and we played with Gorilla Biscuits and we played all these shows that and did tour, you know, like we did the Have Heart tour, which I was like, I was, it was cool, but I wasn't a Have Heart fan. Um, and I was never a Lifetime fan and like Gorilla Biscuits is cool, but I'm not like, you know, I'm not like a diehard fan for them. So I was kind of like, I felt slighted, you know, it's like, come on, man, I've done all this shit for you guys. I want to do this tour. I want to see Madball every night. I want to see Sick of It All every night, you know? And so I felt slighted and I quit. And by this point, Trey McCarthy from Deathwish had reached out because he'd kind of, I, I, I'm kind of like a little hazy on it, but I remember him saying like, I realized that a bunch of my bands were on tour because by this point, I'm just booking anybody who asks. I'm just booking, and a lot of them were Deathwish bands because I was like, I'm a huge fan of the label. And at the time, they just had a lot of work, hard working bands. So he calls me and he's like, you want to be our in-house guy? And I was like, yeah, you know, sinking ships is gone. 
I was in a relationship at the time and fell apart. I was like, I don't have any reason to stay in Seattle. So like on a week's notice, I just up and moved to Boston, um, linked up with Meltdown prior to that and ended up living in a, in a house with the guys in Guns Up and Meltdown and Shipwreck and uh, was living in a fucking pantry, like pantry hallway thing. There were like 10 of us in a fucking house um, and started working at, uh, at Death Wish for like little to no money, um, just trying to make it work. I, I kind of saw it as my opportunity you know, like, okay, um, maybe this is, maybe this will come become something, but also in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm probably going to fake, I'm going to fake it for three months. They're going to realize I really don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And, uh, and I'm going to go home and then start laying brick. <laughs> so that was always, that's just like a reoccurring theme in my life. Oh, if it doesn't work out, I can always go lay brick. Um, and, uh, it was there for about three months and, uh, I got my first real offer from, uh, Mike Barsh at Soda Jerk in Denver. And I had no idea what the fuck I was looking at. I just, he sends me a real offer. Cause by up until this point, I'm just contacting hardcore kids. I'm not contacting promoters. Just, you know, I never looked at Mike Parsons as a promoter. I just looked at him as a dude who did shows for me. And uh, I get my first offer and I'm like, I don't know what this is. And we shared an office with another booking agency uh, that Merrick Jamalowitz, uh, who's now at Ground Control, books at. How the fuck did you say his name right? (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Merrick. I never said his. I've never heard his name said so right. (laughs) I think that's. I think that's how you say it. (laughs) No, dead on. I've heard other people say it, but I'm too much of a chooch to say it myself. So I was. I was impressed. Uh, I went into his office and I was like, "Hey, man." you know, he, he, he had made efforts to come into, into the death wish office and introduce himself and say hi. And I remember he was like, if you ever need anything, you ever need help, let me know. And so I went into his office and I handed him my uh, offer from Denver. And I was like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> like, what is this? I see the money, but what's all this other stuff. And, um, and he broke it down for me. He wrote me notes. He was like, this is what this is. And this is what this is. And this is how you do this. And, um, you know, you need to know, you know, he taught me some of the most valuable lessons, you know, he was like, you know, if you feel uncomfortable asking for it, then it's probably not the right amount of money, you know? And then he also said, sometimes don't ask for anything. You never know what this person's going to offer you. They might offer you a hundred. They might offer you a thousand, you know, really took the time to help me out, took me to shows, introduced me to a lot of people. Um, he didn't, he didn't like feel like he was beneath or um, above me. He treated me like an equal. And there's a couple agents out there that that did that right out the gate. You know, like Merrick was the first. Tim Bohr was another one. Like, I remember getting my first offer for a tour for from Tim Bohr. And he just emailed me like he would anybody else. And he treated me like equal. And like, if, you know, we needed to hop on a call, he was, yeah, let's hop on a call. Talk to me like, a like you know, like I wasn't a kid. Whereas I encountered other people who I think saw my situation as, oh, you're just some fucking dude. You're some asshole, whatever. And they would like try and push me around and, uh, and I'm still a, like, you know, of kind of like a, a, an aggressive hardcore kid. So there was a couple agents that like, that caught it cause they would call me and they would try like bark orders at me and shit. And I'd be like, <laughs> I'd be like, look, motherfucker, I don't know who the fuck you are. Like, fuck you, you know? And they'd just be like, what? And then like, I'd go into the office next morning and Merrick would be like, yo, what did you do? Who'd you, what, what'd you say to that dude? And I was like, that dude calls me on a Sunday. He starts barking orders at me. Fuck that dude. You know, later on, I find out that guy books like fucking, you know, saves a day or some shit, you know, some big fucking band. And um, so I, I learned a lot of tact from Merrick too, you know, that not everything needs to be met with like hostility and more so sometimes you just got to 
you got to kind of find a way to navigate conversations that maybe you don't want to be in and you don't want to have. So I owe a lot to Merrick um, and Trey McCarthy, especially like he really like with, with death wish, like he really has that bigger picture in mind. And even though it didn't work out with booking in house, he really like the fact that he wanted to do that and he wanted to pursue that and keep his bands on the road. I think that speaks volumes about that label. And like, well, well, let's, let's, let's dig into that for a second. Cause I know you're, I know you're doing a really good job of staying on point. What, what do you think didn't work? Um, what didn't work with, with me and death wish was, um, I, I wanted at the time, hardcore was very, was very much lying in the sand. Like, you like hardcore was in one one end of the of the of the field music was on the other <laughs> like and right now it's like you know a lot of younger kids are you know you're seeing a lot of bands getting along everybody's touring together mixed bills everything's great you know and it's awesome it should always be like that but at this time hardcore bands didn't fuck with bigger bands they didn't fuck with bigger fests they didn't fuck with endorsements they didn't do anything and i had a lot of bands that i'd be like hey here's this cool opportunity to tour with this band that's not a hardcore band they're like a deathcore band or a metalcore band but you'll play in front of younger kids and that band would be like absolutely not no fuck that you know uh, and that let me and- let me let me let me tie this back into that manball comment um you know before before you had taken over with blacklisted i mean blacklisted had seen bands open for sick of it all and agnostic front manball so when they started getting the offers they they there was one where they did a weekend where we were all in the van to play with blood for blood and, and Ragman. Nice. And then after that blacklist, it was like, fuck playing with these guys. And we even talk to you, you know, like, and I think that it's, I, this is a cool thing that you have brought up because you rightly so, like we're talking 17 years later, you know, uh, 16 years later, 15 years later, Motherfuckers don't even want to tour with a hardcore band. They're immediately trying to jump to play with something non-hardcore, and I and that's a, and that's what I said in the intro to you. Like, you came in a golden era, the last real pure hardcore for hardcore sake era. Yeah, where the scene was self-supporting and didn't really. It was the last time I saw people be like, ah, that part, like you know, like openly being like, nah, fuck them now. No matter what band comes through, if if they have the ability to help out five and six other hardcore bands to get bigger, hardcore is like, oh yeah, 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 they, they can hang out too. Where before they'd be like, people would be on stage being like, hey, fuck the next band good about to play, you know, like, <laughs> and obviously like Bob Wilson, who we had on the show previously, a little bit of Greg Mongoloids, like those guys were really hard on bands that weren't hardcore and like, nah, fuck that. And obviously things change and them guys have grown and their bills and the things that they put on show that. But I'm glad that you alliterated that for people listening who don't have the perspective of that, because I remember talking to you being like, yeah, like, I mean, it was another reason why we named the fest. This is hardcore because there was a pushback against the warp tours and the new metals. And like this, what we felt like was unseemly un un unnecessary growth, not growth, but like, invasion of people coming in and using our small shows as a way to build their bands, but not giving a fuck about the culture. So I just wanted to interrupt and say, thank you for alliterating that point. Yeah, it, it was, it was one of those things where, you know, when I was at death wish, uh, the, the, the beginning of the end was, uh, when 
the Scion Fest, the Scion show started happening um, because all of a sudden, like, you know, they wanted to do stuff with hardcore bands and, and ultimately they were after Converge that I remember, I remember that Converge came up every fucking time. And it's like, I don't have, I don't work in the Converge camp. I don't control anything Converge does. So they, they would always throw me favors and throw me shows and throw me crazy money, <laughs> crazy money. Dude, I remember the conversations you being like, yo, Scion just offered this. And I'd be like, what fucking universe, <laughs> like, like what racket are they, is this person in to fucking have this kind of money to put there? And, and I didn't look at it at the time, like anything more than opportunity for people I, I respect and I'm friends with, you know, I remember getting blacklisted some absurd amount of money enough to where I was like, if these guys find out, cause at the time I remember, uh, death was not wanting me to do those. They were like, no, like that's, that's so, you know, it's whack. It's a whack look. And it was just, it was growing pains. You know, I don't think anything, I don't hold it against them. It was just like, it was a very new uncharted territory to be in at that time. And I remember blacklisting getting some crazy amount of money offered to them. And I remember it was like, if I pass on this and these dudes find out, they're going to kick the shit out of me. <laughs> like, you know, because this is a full-time touring band and here's their opportunity to get a break, you know, to get a monetary break. And I looked at it with a lot of those bands, you know, and Mammoth Grinder, like those guys were breaking their necks like on the road and they needed help, you know, play the Scion show here, get your van fixed, buy a new van, you know, um, you know, a lot of bands got to benefit from that. And that's how I looked at it. I was like, I didn't think that shit was going to do anything for their, you know, their quote unquote career. Like, you know, Scion, and it was a tax break. I remember talking to one of the dudes about it and he's like, oh, it's just, a, this, this whole thing's a tax break, you know, don't worry about it. It's like no biggie, you know, and that is what it is, you know, it's like, and there were just happens to be guys in there that want to play, that wanted to uh, use their ability to make great shows happen. And so that was awesome, you know, and I, I think, uh, you know, the team of at Scion at that time was great. And then unfortunately it ended at a Cro-Mag show with a giant brawl, but what better way to to end uh, the Scion hardcore relationship than with a giant fight at Cro-Mags? So, no, it was it was great, and I think there was a that was a, a small one example of me wanting to get into bigger stuff and do bigger things and make make bigger opportunities happen for bands that I wanted to work with and that I was working with. Um, so then, uh, eventually, like I got an offer to work at, at another company in LA. Um, and I just wanted to be transparent with Deathwish and be like, hey, look, I got this offer. I don't know if I'm going to take it. I just, I don't want you to hear about it from anybody but me. And, you know, they reacted as they reacted very like harshly, very like, like defensive and pissed, you know? And I think that kind of like sold me on the LA thing. I was like, okay, I think it's just time for me to, to get out. Uh, my big regret was just my exit uh, was... I just, I got into some weird argument with someone in the office, um, knee jerk reaction. I was like, fuck this. And I took my keys off the ring, left it on my desk, never came back. I kind of regret doing it that way. Like that was, that was 25, 26 year old me. I, I think I was 26, 20, maybe 27. Um, I'm bad with the time frame and the age, but, um, that was me reacting the way I would have reacted at the time. I wish I could go back and fix that. Um, I don't think I have any problems with Trey McCarthy now. I, I don't know. I haven't talked to him in a really long time, but, but I'm very, I always, I think of him from time to time. And I think like he was a big reason that I was able to do a lot of the stuff I've been able to do and still am doing. So, so I have a lot of love for Trey McCarthy and, and that whole death, Wish team. Why? Well, I, I, so I'm going to give you a perspective that 
the listeners should value here because you're doing a really good job of being succinct and just like powering through the the legacy that you put down. From my perspective, Andy started as just a kid who had some bands coming through. And it was easy to deal with. I was much like he's talking about the kind of guy who would get an email. Hey, can we get on the show? We never talked money. We just said, all right, yeah, good, jump on the show. And it was an easy, it was an easy, every time you brought something to me, um, you were the first one that, you know, brought a bunch of bands. Like, I mean, Cruel Hand, a lot of the stuff that you were bringing to Philadelphia was as easy of like, yo, do you have a date? Yeah, I'll get a date. Or, oh, we already have a show. But I watched you grow. And the the thing that you said about because you were touring with Singing Ships and people knew, I think it did add value to where you probably helped that band get on tours because they knew that you had the potential to build a show or uh, book a tour around it. And so I remember when you and crazy ass Paulie show up together, I'm like, this is a fucking combo. And right out the bat from the first, this is hardcore into the second and third, you saw a track of tours that were going from sound of fury at the end of, july to mid-august in philadelphia and because you were involved you saw this kind of like this new world of bands and i remember as we would talk more and more in the in the in that era you were constantly being like oh i got this band who now wants to do shows and you weren't the guy that a lot of people would come later and be like like you didn't treat booking bands like i'm signing this band to my situation you effortlessly booked hundreds of dates in the first couple years with no thought to the kind of um, mercenary or entrepreneurial, I need to get my money every single time. You did a lot of things out of love of what it was and to build up your repertoire. And you learned a lot from just doing it and learning. And, and you know, as a, as a friend and someone who would talk to you so much, I mean, I don't think there'd be weeks where we wouldn't talk on the phone you were constantly building and people were coming to you. And so I remember when you're like, Hey man, I, I think I'm just going to go to Boston. Death wish wants me to book. I think that you need, I think the world needs people like you at that point in your life where you're wide eyed, you're excited, you're enthusiastic. You may not know everything you need to know. And, that, and a lot of our guests have been that same person, like opportunity strikes and you're on the fucking ground running. And it was impressive and it's impressive that at the time when hardcore needed someone like you to do what you were doing, that you were in that position first as kind of a person learning the ropes and helping these bands as they learn the ropes. And it's funny to think like now there's bands that aren't even half the size of some of the bands that we're talking about. Like blacklist, it was way more established before they're like, Hey, we need an agent. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into that, but it's, I just want to point out in this era that we're talking about, you know, it was you, it was Timmy. Pike wasn't even trying to touch half of the bands. Like a lot of hardcore agents at, at this time still weren't looking at bands as like, <laughs> they don't even make $500 a night. Why would I bother booking them? You know, like there was this all this untouched group of bands that were just fucking killing it. And it was the Wild West. And, and you navigated it well. And you helped so many bands navigate a world where, what happens when five bands from three different small tours 
end up in a place like Vegas or Reno and how do you make all the bands work on a show so all the bands that are playing Sound of Fury and also this hardcore can all play on one show. There's a lot of little problem solving things that you did and I remember fuck I you know I wasn't wise enough to think that we'd be talking about it 15 years later in a podcast. <laughs> but like there were so many times we'd be like dude I've got this band playing with these guys. I've got you know like I watch and I've talked about it on then like the the two fest on each coast having this there was created these track, these tour tracks, the North route, the South route, the middle route. Yeah. You and I spoke on this and I was, so I wanted you to kind of get on if you felt like it, you know, um, the Alabama. Yeah. You play cave nine for Mike Parsons. You might play the 75 to 120, but not when it was in between the two, to- the fests, you know, like these festival routes and these different things happening in hardcore at that time, gave the small towns, the Tulsa's and the St. Louis's a bigger chance at the pie of some of these bands they would never get naturally. And so I know that, you know, I I know you're glancing over some of this, but it is important to say that during this time, your impact on making sure that a big piece of America's hardcore scene started seeing more and more shows. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny. I remember you, the episode where you brought up the tracks and like, it was, uh, yeah, there was like a north, there was a middle one, and then there was like a, a south. And and I remember 2007 and 2008 especially, I, I, man, I was like, there was so much going on around the two festivals. And it would be like four or five band, you know, packages and like crazy packages, like Have Heart, Rise and Fall, Trash Talk, Meltdown, uh, you know, Sinking Ship, Shook Ones on one show you know, yeah. like something crazy like that and, and be playing in like a house, the backyard of a house in Fresno. And, and it's like, I, you know, I think back and I'm like, man, I can't, rem- I can't believe that happened. You know, between 2007, 2008 was like, those are the two years where it was just, it was great. It was, I, I, I guess it's corny sounding, but magical. You know, there was just, there would be weeks, you know, like if you lived in Birmingham or Dallas uh, or Arizona, there you prepped as a hardcore kid for that week you're like that week i'm gonna see four shows one two three four all in a row and i never put a lot of thought into anything other than like bands needed help you know i remember the first time but you know uh letdown came into my circle and i i forget how it happened but i just remember being like yeah they need help they're my they're they are friends with my friends they need a tour i'll put them on tour you know and and you know, same thing with a lot of like smaller bands that people like won't, won't ever think of again. You know, like uh, there, there was a, a, a small little era where those were like really important bands. Um, I'm also a big fan of Bob Wilson. So, <laughs> so, but like, yeah, you know, same thing when he started Mother of Mercy, you know, booking Mother of Mercy, you know, it was like another band that I think just had a moment and unfortunately just should have been bigger. You know, I think Letdown should have been bigger. I think Mother of Mercy should have been bigger. And those they're part of a circle of bands that just were in this real cool moment. And I, uh, I think in 2000, was it 2000, 2008 though, was also the year that things changed. Um, and by this point, uh, by, by 2008, I started to notice things started going more in a business direction. And Absolutely. And I remember we had a conversation once where I was, I was complying, I was beefing with some other agent uh, who I'm cool with now, but I was beefing some agent and uh, a, a smaller, uh, smaller, you know, another hardcore dude, and uh, and he uh, he was just not doing it the way it should have been done, respectfully. Like 
he was holding kids over the rail, like hardcore kids, for asking for crazy money that a band wasn't worth. And it goes back to that, that my love of hardcore and my respect for hardcore. It's like, I don't want to be the agent that ruins hardcore kid, hardcore for a kid. Like, of course, a 17-year-old kid is going to promise you the earth, moon, and the stars for a package in Wichita. He's a stupid hardcore kid. He's a, he's a kid, you know? Like, he doesn't have $1,000, you know? But of course, he's going to tell you that because he wants to get the show. But what's, what happens when you book, you know, some, some adult-ass band of hardcore dudes into that town and they don't, that kid doesn't have his money. Like you're not only doing a disservice to that band, you're doing a disservice to the kid because that kid is never going to book a show again. He's also never going to go to a hardcore show again because he just got walked to the ATM or to his parents' house or whatever, you know? And I saw a lot of that happening, starting to happen 2008 onward, you know, like to our uh, summer 2008 onward, people kind of noticed, Oh, like we can do this as a business. And it's like, yeah, that's great. But like, there's, uh, you know, business ethics, you know, like they teach fucking college courses for that shit. Be aware. And I still do that to this day. When I got back into booking, I'll call people and be like, hey, I, I'm stoked that you're stoked. But do you have $1,500? No. Then why are you offering me $1,500? I so, actually just had that. I had that kind of call with the kid the other day. He and they said, hey, I want to do this. I said, listen, I'm going to I'm going to ask you for some basic things. Don't put this on my band as they're like a rock star, like asking for these things are just na- natural things that a band needs. And so I don't want you to be like, huh, you fucking believe this guy, you know, like I, I know you're trying to get in their work and that's always been something special about you. And it's something that you and I have really kicked around a lot of times in our calls. And I'm so glad you brought it up. It's like the people who book bands aren't always the people that should be doing it. And and the good ones balance between being mercenary motherfuckers and they protect the band's value and all this shit. But a lot of these people that have gotten well-known in the hardcore scene are just straight-up fucking pirates. And worse, they're, they're not scam artists because they are selling something that they get, but they know damn well that the person on the other end of the transaction does not know what they're walking into. Yeah. And I remember many times you saying that to me, like, I can't fucking believe this. And it's like, you know, like the, the, the funny thing is, is yeah, there sometimes an offer is good, too good to be true. Like a fucking, there isn't always a deal where like this, if a kid's offering you a thousand dollars where a band's getting 400, m- maybe me and you are different, but I'm not, I'm not just going to jump on that. I'm like, wait, 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 what's going on here? Where the other person is like, fuck yeah, that's more money for me. So Again, I don't hate to I hate to derail your uh, the speed of which you're going through this, but I just wanted to commend you and tell everybody like this is something that you and I have gone over for hours and hours. The level of detail where there is a rise in hardcore, and, and it's a big part of what would change again, it, like seven years later, would be a whole new era of promoters. It's just like the wave of hardcore kids and the wave of trends. Different people jump in the game and they start doing stuff they're following more of the ethics that you're talking about now where the big offer is the only one that's going to get the show. Yeah. And so sorry for, sorry for cutting you off in the middle of, of it. I'm sorry. Oh, all good. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's funny. Like, you know, and, and it's, I'm not, I'm not without my faults. I, I definitely made similar mistakes to that, but I learned from them real quick. You know, it's like, uh, you know, I always make the joke, like, you know, some guy 
like offers you $500 and he doesn't have $500. What are you going to do? Shake him upside down? Like, you know, and if he doesn't have it in his pocket, he doesn't have it in ATM. So, you know, walking in an ATM ain't going to matter. And I think it's, it's those, those, those things that need to be addressed a little bit more. Like, you know, same thing with like comes down with like contracts. Like, yeah, I could contract some, some kid for 500 bucks. But if that kid doesn't have 500 bucks, am I going to put together a team of legal advisors to go after this 18-year-old kid in fucking Tulsa? Like, no. Like, you know, it's just like the relationship with that promoter, whether it's a hardcore kid or not, that deal is only as strong as that relationship. You know, and I've heard stories of bigger agents, you know, like I don't pretend like I'm like this massive agent. I never was. But I've had heard stories from other agents, other companies where they're just like, yeah, some dude did a big festival in fucking, you know, Chicago or outside Minneapolis or whatever, took all the uh, paid deposits, took all the money from the tickets, canceled the fest and disappeared. Never saw him again. It's like, yeah, but what are you going to do? He's probably in Mexico. I mean, no one's ever going to find that dude. You know, he's gone. And it's like on a smaller level, that is what it is. Like kid want, you know, I got to, I got to trust that the person I'm working with, unfortunately, is going to do his job and be a trustworthy person. And, you know, an optimism and, and throwing faith people's way is not one of my stronger qualities, but at the same time, there's a little bit of risk there. And I think a lot of bands are never told that they're never told, like, there's a risk here. This is touring is blue collar work. You get into a van, you're loading all your own gear. It's work, it's work, it's work. You don't get to this level where people are just rolling out the red carpet until much, much later on, and, and even if you even get there. And a lot of bands, especially now, are sold on something that is not like really possible or feasible. You know, they're they're given like they're gassed up. And I've just never been one to do that to to bands. And you, the same agent that you know holds this kid fucking hostage for for money that he that he knew booking that show that this kid probably didn't have is the same guy who's telling this you know, this band that fucking you know this deathcore death metal hardcore hybrid band that is a very niche band that oh one of these days we're gonna be doing thousand cap rooms we're gonna be singing we're gonna be you know out in the streets singing popping bottles partying we're gonna be like you know rich making so much money it's like get the fuck out of here like you know understand where you are what kind of band you're doing be realistic with your artists you know like i every artist i have now i'm very realistic with i tell them you know let's let's be realistic in what we're doing and not do as as blacklisted used to put it live in fantasy island and you know i learned like learning that as i go you know like there was a lot of hard lessons i learned with with you know asking you know accepting money or offers from people that i should have known better and i learned that lesson by having to get screamed at on the phone by a band be like why did you take this this kid doesn't know what he's doing he said he had money doesn't have money it's like you know i don't want to be screamed at on the phone by fucking human furnace like no one wants that <laughs> so do you want to um let's break before you get back into your story let's break into some of that because i think it's important to understand that the way that a band approaches a booking agent relationship. And this is a thing. Fuck me. And you probably could do an entire, we should probably do an entire episode of like a tutorial, but just from a perspective basis, when you went into blacklisted, they needed someone like you because they didn't want to be on fantasy Island. They didn't want 
to have a dude like a Tim Moore be like, hey, do this sick of it all. Well, he doesn't deal with sick of it all, but I'm just an example. He deals with man ball. Um, hey, do this man ball run every couple months. Like they wanted someone who could curate and keep the offers that were coming down on them out of their mind. Like, can you just fucking handle this and say no? Whereas when you were like, when um, I was like, dude, you got to work with Ringworm. Remember that? Yeah. And that was the thing is, is from touring with Ringworm in 2003, they were really starting to push hard. And, you know, Furnace and played it. This is hardcore. And, you know, I'm going to tell you what, and I know that you'll back me on this. Is there another hardcore band who did so much by themselves and knew every little bit by themselves before? Like, we're talking about multiple victory records between the, the members who were Integrity and the members that were in Ringworm. All the shit that they did by themselves before they ever got with you. You know, like, it's fantastic the level of DIY that they did. But even then, they needed someone like you to facilitate and work with them in a capacity where you can get the offers that were never going to land on their pocket. So I kind of want you to go into it before we get more into your story. Just some of the nuances of different relationships. You have to go like, oh, this band gave me, you know, this band came from this. But talk a little bit about how a band comes to wanting a booking agent from your perspective. Um, well, a lot for for a lot of it, like a lot of the bands that I booked early on didn't need agents, didn't need someone, didn't need someone like me. Um, it's it, a lot of times that shit was mostly out of just you know, lack of, of, uh, time, um, or even motivation to like, to learn, to, to, to learn that they could do it on their own. Um, and even now, like sometimes I'll, I'll talk to bands, they'll come up to me and, or, you know, I'll reach out and I'll be like, yeah, you, you don't really need me. Like, do you really want to pay me 10% to lose money? You know what? Mother Mercy is a great, great fucking example of this. So I loved Mother Mercy and I started booking them. Um, they just never, never caught on, got them on some, some supports, uh, booked them some headliners. It just never clicked. And sometimes that happens. You can have a great record, a great label, an agent, you can have all the pieces and it just doesn't stick. So I dropped them and I dropped them not because they weren't worth money, but I dropped them because they were my friends and they were paying me money to lose money. And that didn't make sense. And I, and I, and I felt like an can you, asshole. Can you break that part down? So like if, a, if, if like a band goes out and they're making a hundred dollars a show and they're not, but they're on top of that or, you know, $200 or whatever, and they're not selling enough merch uh, to make up the difference, you know, for expenses like gas or van rental or whatever it is, they're going to come home in debt, but they still have to pay me my 10%. And by, by the time when I dropped them, I was working at a company that I had to uh, commission bands. I, I couldn't, at Death Wish, I, you know, I was kind of like real lax about it. I was like, eh, whatever, don't, don't worry about it. But, you know, if a band was, was struggling, but by the time I'm in LA and I'm working at this company, they, they demand results and those results are money based. And so I remember Mother Mercy did a tour of Fire and Ice tour did not do well. Uh, they were in debt. They were struggling for money. Uh, and, and then, and then here I am, like, I've got to send them an invoice. They're like, oh, by the way, you owe me $400. And it's like $400 isn't a lot of money, but it's also not a small amount of money. And I just felt like a fucking asshole. So I, you know, reached out and said, look, you guys don't need me to do this. Like you're losing money, you know? And it was painful. And I, I did not, I don't, I still don't like dropping bands. And, and I, and I knew they were going to react real poorly, which they did. They were pissed. They were, you know, cause they looked at it like I was abandoning them. I was leaving them. 
And it wasn't that. It was like, yo, you know, for any listener here, if your agent books a show, you got to pay them whether your van breaks down, whether you sell merch or not, like that money still has to go to them. And for a lot of agents, the, the standard is everything goes to them. You book a, you book anything, even if they're not involved, which is a practice I've always thought is fucking stupid. I fucking hate it. Yeah. I fucking hate it. And like, you know, it's, and it, it's like, I don't do that business. I don't do what I do now that way. Like if a band hits me up now and they're like, Hey, you know, we want to play, uh, we're going to play the show in our hometown with a friend of ours who's doing the show. I'm like, cool, have fun. Oh yeah. Don't worry. We'll give you your 10%. And I'll just straight up said to, like, this happened like last week. I was like, why am I doing any work? You're going to, what, you're going to pay me 50 bucks from your $500, you know, guarantee from this guy because you feel like you need to, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay someone for work they didn't do, you know? And I'm, I'm sure some agents probably going to listen to this and be like, what the fuck? You know, but. No, but- I'm, I'm, I'm in that same boat. Uh, I'm going to break this down for you from a perspective. I'm just explaining to the audience. Um, so booking agents are sometimes contracted some a lot of time it's like verbal honor agreements where they handle the contracting side of a deal so a band will say hey we're playing this show you know we just got asked to be on it some bands will say hey get us good money or make sure we have a good position other times a band might say hey we got on this some agents will will jump right into agent mode and go okay i'm gonna get you the best deal and i i you know you and i both dealt with it where it's like we want to do a ban on a, something that's going on and the agent comes in and he's bulldogging what he wants and pushing the band up higher on the bill and asking for money that wasn't in the budget. And sometimes it's not even worth the, you know, it's not worth the price of tea in China to hook this band up, even though it would have been a cool idea that the agent pushing for more money or pushing for a better situation for their band sours the whole situation. And yet there's other times when it's just between two friends bands, like, Hey, band A is bigger. I'm going to take band B on tour. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah. You know, like there's a contract that comes with the shows and there's some agents who say, if I'm, if I'm involved in the contracting, I need my 10%. And there's times where, like you said, Hey, we're playing this local thing, blah, blah, blah. You know, we've already got it all figured out. Okay. I still need my 10% of what is it? 500 bucks. That's 50 bucks. And that's that mercenary. I still got to get mine. Even if you didn't actually go get, you know, it's a, it's the opposite of the, you eat what you kill. It's, oh, you're doing this. Well, I, you know, we have a deal. So I get that money too. Yeah. And it, it didn't, it, you know, when I, when I went out to LA and I started, I worked for a couple companies out there. Well, let's not get into that. I'm just saying like more in general, that's kind of what you were talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's more or less what I was talking about. And I, and I got a big dose of that in LA. Like, so then, so then. Let's let's get back to your story since we've been talking a lot of theory, and I know um, I know that me and you could probably do an entire four hours on theory. <laughs> so to get back to the Andy Rice story, now Andy Rice, obviously you're you're killing it at Death Wish. I mean, in the sense where you've gone from being the kid from Singing Ships and Meltdown to your name's ubiquitously put on so many fucking tours. Now you were were you living in Boston when you did the Have Heart Blacklist, or did you already shift to LA by that time? Uh, I was living in Boston with the with the Have Heart Blacklisted Ceremony Tour. Now, before we get on, I got to say, like, I've said this on the show, so you've heard it. Every couple years has a tour that's remembered by most of that generation. And I think that that was it. Yeah. I think that that, I think that, that was like a tour that generation, generationally 
if you were going to shows at that time, you knew about that fucking show, you went to it. And uh, actually, on the episode with Bob, I remember when I had to go down to I had to go down to stand on stage in Baltimore on that tour in case somebody went to fuck with Bob. <laughs> <laughs> but how did it feel as an agent? You, you, because you know, you and I obviously talked about it at that time. But for everyone listening, it feels something special when, as an agent, you're involved in something that you know everybody wants. And I remember in settlement in Philly specifically. That me asking what was the show that paid you guys the most money, and when they said it, when they said, it, I don't know, I remember LA, this. I'm like, yeah, and I was like, wait, L.A. paid you more money? Fuck that! And I took money from my shit. Like Philly paid you guys more. We paid you the most money on this tour. Oh man, I I totally forgot about that. I do remember that. I was losing my shit laughing. Yeah, like I, I don't need the money. I want everybody to say that Philly paid this tour the most money because that show at the church was, again, if you were a kid at the shows, whether you're you know an up and coming kid or you've been established, you remember that show at the church and it was something fantastic. That was that tour. Like, was I? I just booked the dates, and and that's the thing I I really want to like want every if you're in a band if you're in a band and you're listening to this. I just booked the dates. How that tour came about was Toast from Ceremony. I want to say George from Blacklisted. And I don't know if someone from Have Heart was there. But anyways, those two guys came up to me and were like, hey, we're doing this tour when you need you to book it. It's going to be these three bands. Like, let's do this. And, and, that's, and I'm saying it like that because no agents involved in making those bands play nice. No, nothing like that. Those were three bands. Those were the three biggest bands in hardcore at the time. and they were all friends. They were all cool. And they saw the benefit and the value in all of us going out and doing something like really cool and really amazing. And I think the, there's a misconception now that a lot of younger bands get that like, well, we couldn't do that because we'll have to have our agent talk to this agent or our manager talk to this manager and blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, no, man, like you're an artist. You control your own destiny. Like an agent, a manager, a label, we're all tools in a toolbox that you get to utilize when you feel like it. And that is a great example of with that, with, uh, that's a great example of something happening without outside influence, fucking it up, you know? And I think a lot of, uh, there's probably a lot of missed opportunities out there because bands fuck it up and they don't control their destiny. It's like, you want to tour with these two bands? Cool. This is what we're going to do. Go to your agent and say, we're going to tour with these two bands. You want to book it? well, blah, 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 or they maybe they have their own agenda. No, the conversation shouldn't be like that. You're the employer. They're the employee. We're doing this. You either book it or we'll get someone else. And that was how that broke down. Like, of course, I'm going to say yes. Like that, that was, that was going to be a fucking massive tour, you know? And I didn't look at it as money at the time. I don't think I char. I don't think I got paid from blacklisted. I don't think blacklisted really paid me ever, but I didn't really care. I was, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge blacklisted fan. So I was like, fuck it. I don't care. <laughs> but, um, I don't remember getting paid from that tour, but I didn't care. I didn't look at it like from a money standpoint. I just remember it was a backstage at Sound of Fury 2008. Oh my God, that'll be fucking huge. And I remember when it announced, it was like the fucking internet exploding. I think when people were calling it the Monsters of Rock tour, like as a joke, because it was like yeah. the three pants. But it was so cool. And it was like, it, it was my relationship with bands has always been like that. And the one time that I, broke from that with hardcore bands 
I regret it to this day. There's one tour that I always think of where I'm just like, I should have followed my instincts. I, I should have listened to the band, but I got caught up in a bunch of like agent bullshit, label bullshit, manager bullshit. And we did the tour and it, and the band suffered for it because we put whack bands on. I followed other, let other people like pursue their agendas and it's like, and it didn't work, but like this worked, you know, if that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. I'm going to, I'm going to do a little bit of explaining some theory to people listening who are like, don't get it. So in Andy's time, ancient times compared to now, <laughs> there was toast from ceremony. My boy, best dude who, um, basically booked and helped run that band until his departure as a bass player. And just like one of the main guys in the band structure, there was the half heart cars, which the half heart guys, you eventually started booking. Yeah. Uh, there was blacklisted who, again, you guys are booking. Uh, there was ceremony, which toast handled. And then there was letdown. Who's just like Bob Wilson being an asshole. And everybody, we love Bob. Like Bob having a relationship with all them bands was like, oh, we'll have them on the bill. Today's structure would be Havard has a manager. Havard has a separate booking agent. Toast isn't anything involved because the ceremony has a manager. Ceremony has a booking agent. Oh, Blacklist, they have a manager. They have a booking agent. Letdown might even have a, a, a booking agent by now, if not a manager too. And then all four bands each have individual record labels unless they're on their label mates. So now there's besides Andy toast and the bands who want to play today's structure would be at least two for the three biggest bands. So six guys, maybe a seventh for letdown Andy, which makes it eight and then four different label ideas added to the equation. And what the argument would be to make a half heart blacklisted ceremony tour now with who would play last. Who's, you know, uh, the idea of this term co-billing, which we should say for another podcast, is, <laughs> is is one band plays last every night. However, on the bill, you're equal. You're equal on the bill. And I've always been like, look, motherfucker, whoever plays last is headlining. Just shut the fuck up. Yeah. But the ego stroking, we'll save some of this for another podcast, but the ego stroke and the and the mercenary, we need to puff up and make this band feel that they're more important. You know, like it's, it's broken up band relationships. Like you, 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 you touch on one thing that has to be said before we get into more of your own story. I'm so sorry for breaking this up, but like today's successful hardcore bands, very seldomly behind the scenes. And I don't care how you feel about this. Cause you know, I'm fucking telling the truth with the exception of Scott Vogel, who's the fucking man. And the one dude trying to keep hardcore people together playing shows. All you young motherfuckers and all of you old motherfuckers. None of you rabbit motherfuckers want to ever play with each other because your people get involved and it's, well, who's getting more money? Who's the co-bill? Who's getting 80% of the billing on the flyer? All these third and fourth parties jumped in and made it impossible to do or very hard to do unless exactly what you said, where the band say, stay the fuck out of it. We want to make this happen. And I've seen so many cool ideas destroyed by bands letting third and fourth parties talk to talk to them or talk for them. No, you're right. I mean, I've had I've had tours where I'm just like later on, you know, where um, 
Actually, I, I'll bring up Rotting Out in this because I booked them for a long time before they broke up. But they did one of the, the fucking coolest things ever. I was working on a tour with them. It was a co, co-build tour. And the other band uh, had a had a manager and an agent and all this fucking just, just shit going on. And, and it's fine. And it's like, I can deal with that shit. But they, uh, I remember they wanted like a fucking, they wanted the, the tour flyer to look like a fucking NASCAR with just a million logos at the bottom, like bands endorsed by all this shit. And it was a huge thing. It like made the art look whack. And it was just like, and Rotting Out were like, yo, like this is fucking stupid. We're not, we're not doing this. And they were pushing and pushing and pushing. And then finally Rotting Out said, yo, the, the only label on there is going to be the fucking record label, the record labels. And that's it. No other fucking sponsors, no other shit. If that band has a problem with it, fuck them. We won't do the tour. And I was like, I am so fucking glad you said that. And then I just I sent the email. Band says it's this way or no way. And they got and of course the whole team were like, oh, okay, shit, shit, shit. You know, like, we're sorry, we're sorry. And more bands seem to do that shit. It's just like, dude, like okay, like for an example, why the fuck does my name need to be on the fucking tour flyer? Like I don't need to be on the tour flyer. The kid buying the ticket to the show doesn't care that I booked it. He's not looking at the flyer going, oh man, who booked this fucking ripper fucking hardcore show? Andy Rice did. That's what I thought. No, no one's fucking doing that. Just like no one cares that the band's endorsed by Liquid Death. No one cares that the band's endorsed by fucking... Actually, if you were endorsed by Gibson Guitars and you're in a hardcore band, yo, wave that fucking flag. <laughs> but, but like, uh, it's like little shit like that that holds up the march of progress to having great shows. And, you know, that tour I was talking about was a rotting out tour, the, the, the past tour where it's like, I, I went against all my instincts and I went against my gut and I let, I let other people influence decisions. And, and then I'm pushing this, this influence on the band. And then we did this tour and we did all these tricks and we did all this bullshit and we put bands on there that just were fucking just not not bad, but like just didn't make sense because we're trying to do something like I don't know what. And the tour happens and it bombs. And I'm just like, and I'm at the New York show and I'm like, what the fuck? Like I fucked up. I fucked up. And then the next tour Rotting Out does has two legit fucking awesome great bands on it that they picked and that tour kills. So it's like a lot of times the band knows better. And a lot of this little shit, all this fucking stuff that makes the situation shittier and like drag on, it's like, it doesn't need to happen. It's like, ultimately it's like, I'm quoting the Melvins here. I, I read, I, I watched an interview with, with Buzzo from the Melvins where he says, if you put out good music and you work relatively hard, success will come your way. It's up to you what that success is. But that, you know, is a prime example of like, you know, bands like Rotting Out, have heart blacklisted ceremony you know like when those bands were touring they didn't there was no tricks when i was booking them and when i was working with them i never booked ceremony officially just in case anyone from ceremony listens but the those bands you know have heart have heart drawing nine thousand people in fucking worcester is awesome but that band earned that they didn't there was no tricks they i they i think they supported maybe two tours maybe um and same thing with Rotting Out. Rotting Out earned every inch. The fact that they're doing all these big tours now, it's like awesome. They get a break. They've earned that right to go do some some fun, unique stuff, you know. But no tricks, no no sponsors, nobody like you know back then. Nobody trying to like trick the audience into loving it. These bands just put out good records and they worked hard. And I think a lot of bands look for tricks now, 
and especially hardcore bands now, they're like, oh, how do we do this? Or how do we get here? The first thing out of their fucking mouth is like, we need to do bigger tours. Okay, well, you want to do a bigger tour. I'm in a big band. I'm in a big hardcore band. Tell me why I should put you on tour. Because we're sick. Have you toured before? No. Do you have a record out? No. Why the fuck am I going to take you on tour? Yeah. Like, so I think it's it's just fun. It's funny now. And I think it's great that everybody's playing along or play, playing well together. And like, you know, there's a lot of crossover now. There's a lot of different kinds of hardcore bands, you know. But it's but it, the crossover isn't organic. The crossover, the crossover is, I, I I'm gonna be the fucking asshole. The crossover is mercenary. It's they saw seven other bands do it and they go, oh, that's how you get big. And and what you said is more fucking important. Blacklisted, ceremony, rotting out, uh, have heart, verse, Iron Age, bitter end. Who are more bands from these from this time period? There's so many bands in this time period that just put fucking time in, put miles under the tires, played every fucking show, weren't being cunts. Nowadays, you could have one record, you get a manager, you get a booking agent, and now you're doing a support for some bigger band. Oh, TUI early on fucking hustled their ass off. Yeah, those guys toured so much. You know, like these, these bands that busted their fucking ass in the 2000s, especially in the latter half of 2000s, when hardcore didn't mix well with other shit, they earned their fucking keep. And that's why in the late 2000s and 10s and now in the 2020s, the reasonable marketable thing is start a hardcore band and then play with a marginally not hardcore band tour and then you'll gain their followers and then everybody wins. And that's why the fuck they do it. They don't do it. That's why they put on. And, you know, I just did Knock Loose at the church. They did two shows. It was great. But, you know, the bands that put on for Knock Loose, a lot of why they put on for it is they're hoping to get on that tour. And there's a lot of disingenuity in a lot of what hardcore bands now are because of all the stuff that we're talking about. And if that rubs somebody the wrong way, fuck it. It is what it is. Like, the same people putting on for Knock Loose, I never see them wear a Knock Loose shirt. (laughs) You know, like, it's just a presentation on Twitter. It's just a presentation of respect when it's like real respect is earned and real work is earned. And what you guys put on is fucking earned. And it's, it's important to say this to people who are listening. It's not about presentation of the Twitter mind, where if you say the socially acceptable thing, someone's going to respect you, you know? Um, And ironically, not without, not without irony, the reason why knock loose gets the respect from hardcore bands is because when they couldn't fucking play with these hardcore bands, they didn't say, we'll just sit at home until someone recognizes us. They had that kid, Travis Porter, who was not unlike an Andy Rice, and just put him in every fucking small potential room to build them the fuck up. Yep. Like where people are like, oh, this band's a hype band. This band blew up. You can say that about some bands. You can't say that about Knock Loose. They just fucking played shows. And when they didn't have everybody in hardcore capping on them, when they didn't have the Bob Sheds, Putting putting on for them on hardcore podcasts, they were playing small garages and basements and churches with bands no one in hardcore ever fucked with, and they earned their place. That's all I'm gonna say. Not to cut you off, but it's a shame that people can't be more honest about shit. I mean, Knock Loose is a, a great example. Like I've seen, I've seen Knock Loose like at least six times. I don't like Knock Loose, like, and it's fine. It's like not meant for me. I'm an old ass man, but like the 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 reason I say that is is because. 
every time I would go to a show and they'd be playing. Whether they were co, you know, co-billing with another band or just touring with another band, or they were opening for another tour, and I think Knock Loose is a great example of a band that like, like just played shows, made their like carved their own niche, and then when opportunity started coming their way, they started taking it, and they kept working and working and working, and it's like, I yeah, they've earned every right, you know. Same thing, I would say the same thing with Code Orange. Like, I've never been a, been a big Code Orange fan, but I've seen Code Orange a, a fucking lot, and it's because they just always hit the ground running and they always worked. And I, I think that's, that's the thing that people, they, they forget about those, those early days of a band's, you know, that the band building, they just immediately go, well, that band's doing big shit. Like they just getting everything handed to them. It's like, no, they're not like, I should, I should, I should have not seen new knock loose that many goddamn times for, for someone who's like indifferent to them. But I walk into a room. It's like, Oh my God, motherfucker. If I got to see knock loose one more goddamn time, but like that's a testament to the work that they've done and why they are as big as they are. You know, you could say, you know, you look at the bands that are that are, you know, legit headliners now, those bands have all done work. The Knock Loose, the Gate Creepers, the Code Orange, you know, those bands earned every right. So I I get, you know, I get, I get why younger bands look at that because they're not there for for the work. They're there for the celebration more or less. So. Well, they see they see a band like a Gulch do a hoodie that sells insane amounts and people love them. And then they think, fuck work, I'll just do this viral thing or I'll be that I also I said the other day that Twitter is a place where it reminds me of high school where five guys in the room are all trying to vie for making that big joke that makes the whole class laugh. That's what hardcore <laughs> is now. It's it's not a place for a band to write their best material and bust their ass. It's a popularity contest. And it's a, it's a place where if you look the right way, you say the right things, your band is a manufactured idea with a specific look curated for a specific group that you will find yourself more popular than the band, than the kid who just puts his head down and just goes to work. But popular versus long-term longevity it's the work. It's the road. It's the fucking thing. It's why sometimes when a band like a like a blacklisted goes away, tomorrow they could pick up and it would be something special. Not because they were a hype band. I remember people saying it to me, Oh, that band's a hype band. It was like in two thousand and nine when they just released that record, no one here um deserves to be here more than me. And people were so mad about the fucking um <laughs> the sound. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And I remember people being like, oh, you just book hype bands like Blacklist. I went, motherfucker, they just toured so much for the past five years. <laughs> Fuck you. Like, I don't think there was a year where they didn't do two or three U.S. tours. You know, like people misunderstand popularity, hype, internet persona, and all the metrics that come from it with like, oh, there are bands that legitimately put hard miles under the tires and played shows that the band who wants to be respected for is too cool to play. And it's always that, that, that dichotomy of the person who's saying, Oh, this thing is hype. And you know, this is why my band's real and the work that's in them, the work always shows. And that's why when we talk about these things, like if your band's strong enough and like in case what you said with the riding out, like, no, I don't want this fucking flyer looking like a NASCAR thing. You know, there's a lot of things that are manufactured into hardcore the backside of hardcore and we'll probably have a whole I should do a whole podcast about but um that I want I'm so glad that we talked a little bit about now you were talking about how 
at some point you looked at this, you looked at what was going on. Death Wish was starting to go in a different direction, I think, not just musically, but just in general. And the bands were starting to shift. So you actually took a different job, but within the booking realm in Los Angeles and you shifted from Los from Boston. You did the same thing every Boston person does. And you eventually <laughs> end up in Lo- if you live in Boston long enough, you're gonna end up in LA somehow. So I think you were just a Bostonian long enough where like, oh, now you have to live in LA for a certain amount of time. Yeah, I, I went out to LA because uh, I got an offer uh, from Prosthetic Records to work for them and kind of be their in-house guy. But they also were going to allow me, they were going to pay me a salary and also allow me to book my own bands as long as the money funneled to them. And um, and like for, for the listeners out there, like how you're supposed to be an agent, how, how your agent career should go, should be you know, like intern or some shit, and then you're an assistant. And then maybe you're a junior agent and then you become an agent. And it's like, and sometimes it takes five years. Sometimes it takes 10 years. Like, but that's the path, you know, that is the actual path. Um, I just figured it out. <laughs> so I figured out a way around all that shit. And, um, and that's pretty much that, that my workaround was through labels because no, like I, fuck, I'm not, I'm not going to get motherfuckers coffee, you know, and I'm not going to, and I don't like being told what to do. So you know, it's just like being a, being an assistant and intern is, is not going to work. My DNA just doesn't, doesn't work like that. So labels was the work around my prosthetic. And I, I started booking a lot more metal and, um, and more straightforward, like metal type stuff. And that was a huge learning curve because this is, this is where I learned about politics and, and diplomacy and all sorts of shit where I have to go get dinners with people and fucking meet with them and have drinks and all this stuff. Shit. Motherfucker, you were you were hitting me up, be like, oh, I just had lunch with them. I'm like, look at fucking LA Cliff over here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was it's and later on it would just wear me down. That that stuff would wear me down because the thing I love about booking is working with bands. Like I love booking, even when they're being nuts. And like every Philadelphia hardcore band I've ever worked with was a fucking struggle <laughs> but uh but like they were all great bands like and and like the best art comes from people who are maybe a little hard to deal with and but i can deal with that what i can't what really always rubbed me the wrong way was like agents or managers or labels being like difficult you know not wanting to to work together to go forward just being difficult for the sake of being difficult or make me chase them or make it, you know, like that stuff is never going to sit well with me. That shit drives me fucking nuts. I can deal with a band that's creating great art, great music, being difficult, telling me they're going to break up all the time, firing me, you know, once a week, I can deal with all that stuff. But like, because that's their job. It's their job to make music and be nuts. Um, Getting in LA into that whole LA thing, there was a lot of positives but I think I learned a lot of valuable lessons because of the negatives. Learn more from that. So I was at Prosthetic. Eventually, um, I wanted to start my own thing, and so I did. And I was my I did my own agency for a while. I had a I had a, a whack little name called Outliers Talent Agency, and my friend Chuck. Whoa, Andrew. whoa, whoa! Don't don't be <laughs> don't be. <laughs> um, uh, I'll get into that later. But uh, but. You know, I named it. I had a site. I did that whole that whole song and dance. And uh, my friend Chuck Andrews and uh, and Biggie um, from Good Fight or formerly of Good Fight uh, helped me launch that. They helped me start that. They kind of really believed in me and they lo- they helped me get the wheels turning because I didn't know anything about business, running a business. I could book tours, but I I didn't know fuck all about it, that other stuff. 
paying taxes and shit like that, you know, when you run a business. And that was, uh, that those two really helped me figure that out. And then, and then when it was established and going, they were like, all right, you're good. You know, have fun, go nuts, you know, do your thing. So, uh, did that for a while. Eventually. Can you, can you not completely gloss over the difference between when you were working for yourself, but like through somebody versus like when you took on the opportunity to do outliers as his own entity? Um, the difference, the big difference was, um, I, I had more control over how my, uh, my, my business with money with the artists, um, was handled. Um, because I've been on the road and I've, and I've been in those situations with bands where like you come back from a tour and you're broke and maybe you can't afford to pay a merch tab fully. So you work out a way to like pay that off in installments. I wanted to be able to extend the same ability to bands. We're like, you went out on tour, it would have been a success, but your transmission blew. Maybe you owe me a thousand bucks. Uh, what, what can you comfortably part with? I don't know, 600. Then 600 it is get your van fixed and let's look at let's look at the next tour you know because for me it's like i i'm going to benefit and you're going to benefit more if you're able to tour long term not short term i'm not going to worry about this short money it's like you know I, I want you to be able to fix your shit and get things sorted and sometimes like a band would just be really hit on hard times and i didn't want an outside you know boss entity to be putting the the pressure on me to be like, this band owes you a thousand dollars. They don't have a thousand dollars. You need to chase it. You need to chase it. Okay, cool. But they don't have it. You know, I, I wanted to be able to be flexible with my bands because ultimately, you know, I know it sounds like corny, but it sounds like, like, you know, like I'm like, I am in fantasy Island, but like, I really just really enjoyed doing the work and booking the tours and looking at like, I look at it like painting a picture and I get to step back when it's all done and be like, this is the tour I booked. Here's the artwork, the dates, the press release, like all that stuff's cool. That's like, I look back at that. I'm like, that shit's so cool. You know, it all comes together. I just announced a tour with Bushido code. The artwork is sick. Like the response online was awesome. People were so psyched. And it was just like, this is great. The artwork's great. The dates are great. They're, they're part of a, a big event in Pennsylvania. Thanks Joe. Uh, you know, like, that's that's really my motivation for it. Yeah, obviously I like money and money's nice, but you know, there needs to be a fluid relationship between agent or manager or whatever and artist. And I think my perspective of you know is is different because I come from touring, I come from being in bands and I want to be able to like, you know, help these bands out, you know, but I also want to be able to work with them when when shit falls on hard times. I kind of rambled there for a second. <laughs> No, 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 no. You, you delved into some stuff. And I think the, the important thing to gain here is that it's another layer of like a secondary college. Like you learn now what it takes when you have the opportunity to not be under someone else who's chasing bills. Like, Hey, you, you know, you're owed money and we are owed some of that money that you're owed. Like the, the it shows also your ethics, your business ethics and how it relates back to, yeah. Like, um, in a situation, like I said to you, if a band's getting a thousand dollars for a show, an agent would be required to ask for 10%, which is a hundred bucks. But what if it takes $950 for that band to just get that to thousand dollars, whether it's a, a, an engine part or tire problem or 
just that long of a drive back and forth as a one-off. Some agents are going to say, hey, we still get that $100. And the guys are like, oh, you guys need the money more than me. And that's the thing. Do you want to strip a band from its abilities, like you said about the Mother Mercy thing? Do you want to strip a band from its abilities to tour? Or do you want to just focus on making your own money and, hey, it's not my problem that they didn't want? It's like, I think in the long term, an agent with a mindset like yours thinks about the the morale of the band, the continuity of the band, and the overall, like, uh, you know, if you're working with a band and they can't pay your bills, they can't tour, they're either going to go somewhere else or they're going to stop doing it all together. How does that fucking solve anyone's problem? And that's one of the great testaments of stuff that you do. Um, now, when you when you got tired of outliers, you took a totally different approach. So get into that. So the at the time, I just I the the booking was suffering because I was so focused on the business end of things, like just like running a business, keeping up with my finances, accounting. Like it's like because it was just me. You know, I had help. I would every once in a while bring in help, but like it just really started to get on top of me. I started to, the booking started to suffer. So, um, I started talking to a couple of agencies, met with a couple of great people. Um, and then, uh, I sat down with Matt Pike from the Kenmore agency and he, um, uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to word this. Um, so I sat down with him and now, now for the listener, when I was growing up, uh, going to shows, hardcore shows, I was always more fascinated what was going on behind the scenes. Um, I knew who Matt Pike was for many, many years. Um, and he, he's like, you know, a, a guy who he, you know, he booked Haven, Converge, uh, fuck, I'm probably forgetting a bunch, but he booked Bane, you know, booked a lot of great fucking bands. Um, so I sat with him and said, look, here's the deal. I, this is how much I bring in. This is what my money is. Um, I just need someone to handle the business because I'm just, I'm falling behind. So I linked up with him and uh, we did Kenmore. I was at Kenmore for about a year and a half, maybe two. And then um, eventually Kenmore got bought out by a bigger agency and uh, bigger agency. And then that's when things kind of went not the way I wanted them to go. Um, my relationship with Pike kind of soured uh, for a, a, a number of reasons. But more than anything, uh, what ended up happening was it was going in a direction where it was becoming more mercenary based, more cutthroat. And it wasn't the same situation I signed up for when I agreed to, to go with Kenmore. Um, so more or less, I, I've, been, I've been rattling around in my head if I'm going gonna, gonna to actually tell this story, but I'm just going to fucking do it. Um, so when you're an agent, a lo- sometimes people... Uh, there's, you know, you can steal a client when you're an agent, right? You can like pitch to another client. Maybe they have another agent and you can woo them away, you know, with something as simple as beer and pizza. Um, but on the other end of that, sometimes you get hit up by that manager or that label or whatever. And maybe that band already has an agent, but they want them, they have their own agenda. They want you to have another agent. They want you to, you to book them. So they'll reach out to you and they'll be like, Hey, would you be interested in this, you know, in band X? And you're, I, I've had that happen to me. I've had people try and like, we call it being blown out. I've almost gotten blown out a couple times. And a couple times I have lost bands to other agents. But the first time it happened, uh, I got paid professional courtesy by that agent that got hit up that I was going to get blown out. Tim Bora was that dude. You know, I learned. Yeah. And uh, 
Tim Bohr contacted me and said, Hey, I just want you to know you got hit up or I got hit up about one of your bands, you know, maybe talk to your band. Uh, looks like they're, they're, they're going to blow you out. Um, the second time it happened was from Dave Shapiro, who's a very close friend of mine now. And he said, and Tim's partner and Tim's <laughs> partner. Yeah. And I learned this from the two dudes that are like, they're the big dogs, you know, they're the, they're the ones fucking doing big shit. And so here I am, I'm put in the same position. I'm at this bigger agency. Somebody hits me up. Hey, do you want to book band X? And I was like, isn't, aren't they with agent B? Uh, yeah, but they're unhappy. I was like, well, maybe you should fire them first. Well, we don't want to do that. Ben doesn't want to fire, blah, 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 blah. That's not the way business is done. You know, if you're going to hire a new agent, fire your agent first. You know, you don't start hooking up with a girl while you still have a girl, (laughs) you know, like, so I, uh, paid the professional courtesy to that agent and I called him and I said, Hey, look, man, I just got pitched your band and I think it would be in your best interest to maybe talk to him, you know, maybe address those problems. And, uh, you know, just want to give you a heads up. We do a lot of business together. I respect the work you do. And I don't want you to like lose a client. You've been, and at the time he's working real hard on that client, you know? So I did that. Didn't think anything of it. Uh, next day I get a phone call. Did you, from, you know, the powers that be, did you do this? I'm like, yeah, I did this, you know? Uh, and by this point I'm, I'm spiritually bankrupt at this, at this agency at this point. Like I'm, I'm done. Like I'm spent. Like I can't be around these people. I, I'm not even celebrating my wins. I'm drinking at work, like just to get through the day. Like I said, that miserable. And it's tough to be in that situation when you get everything you want. Like you're in a big office, you have assistance, you have all this help, you have all these resources and you're still miserable. It's a real tough situation to be in. And, uh, I get the call I, I I lie about it at first, which is not in my character. And I think that was one of my first big red flags got brought up. I was like, no, nah, I didn't do that. Cause I just don't want to talk to these assholes anymore. Hang up the phone. And then eventually I'm like, yeah, I did this. I paid them the, pro- I paid them the professional courtesy that I learned from other bigger agents. And I remember getting into it with this guy on the, the one of the guys from the company on the phone. I was like, dude, this is business ethics. This is how this works. Like, you know, they teach college classes for this shit. And they were like, like, we're going to have to talk about this when you come in the office. So the next day, Uh-oh. yeah. So the next day uh, is like a weekend and my email gets locked out. I get locked out of my email. And so uh, I, uh, I'm i like, well, no reason to look at my phone. So so I, I just went on a hike. I lived by Elysian Park at the time in Echo Park. And I just, and it just hit me as I'm walking. I'm like, I'm really fucking unhappy. Like I'm really unhappy and I'm drinking a lot more. I'm doing drugs. Um, I'm just, I'm a fucking wreck. I'm just, I, you know, I'm having sold out shows that the team that I'm at is not supporting and nobody believes in the artists I'm doing, even though they're doing big shit. And I'm just like, fuck this. So I went to bed that night and I was like, I think I told my roommate, I was like, I think I'm going to quit. He's like, you're going to quit that company. I was like, no, I think I'm going to quit period. And he's like, whoa. And I was like, if I wake up tomorrow and feel the same way, I'm going to do it. And I woke up and I felt that way. I went into the office. I went right into the CEO's office. I said, hey, look, uh, I'm unhappy and I don't want to book anymore. So I'm out of here. And uh, I found agents for all my bands. Uh, gave some of them to uh, my friend Adam Flyter, who was still working at the time. and said, hey, man, here's some bands. I'm out of here. Um, you know, split. 
on a week's notice, I moved back to Portland, Oregon. That's where I grew up. And, um, and then I took two, two and a half, three years off. <laughs> um, it was, it was good. It was good that I did it the way I did it. The hardest part of that whole situation was knowing that I was going to leave bands that were going to blow up. Uh, Amigo the Devil, who I was booking at the time, I knew they were, I knew he was going to be massive. He was already just crushing. And I was like, this motherfucker is going to start <laughs> selling out massive theaters. And lo and behold, that's what he's doing. Um, and Jesus Peace. I knew Jesus Peace was going to pop. Like, I knew it. And then it's just like, fuck, man. I'm leaving... I'm leaving these things I helped build and, and I'm going to have to watch them reach their goals and I'm not along for the ride. That was really the hardest part about it. And I had a lot of really great people, agents uh, that I respect reach out and be like, Hey, like, are you okay? Are you good? Cause it was very abrupt. It was a very drastic, extreme move. Um, and be like, you know, people thought I was like, like suicidal. Like they were like, are you okay? You know, it's like, yeah, man, I'm just, I'm not, you know, Dave Shapiro is the one who said it to me. He said, he said, when you can't celebrate the wins, you got to reevaluate what's going on. And that's pretty much where I was at. I got to say from a, from a perspective of, of being your friend and then watching your career grow, LA cliff versus Andy Rice is a, like a separate world. <laughs> and I think the LA booking world and the social, there's nothing like, what you were going through like you you were catching shows all the time and you were seeing your bands but that fucking that world like that business industry la world turns people into that yeah and it's not like it's not like oh you were a fallen hero or something like that like you got caught into you know like you said now you're taking lunches as part of like the business gimmick everyone's buying each other on the shit Next thing you know, you're drinking, you're you're partying a bit more because that's the social thing. That's what everyone's doing. And that's not the nature of where you came from. And it took you out of a part of it. And though your successes were definitely getting crazier, the part of the like the the experience I think where you was taken away. You know, it was too industry, it was too corporate, it was too manufactured, or it wasn't organics. And I remember I remember when you left and people had to go somewhere else. I don't know if some of the moves were the smart moves for those bands to go with, you know, they would have rather stayed and you be smaller or be on your own again, but you had to take time away. And um, I remember when you told me you're coming back, I was actually kind of mind blown, but I'll let you get into all that. Um, I, I got brought back by, uh, by Mark Vieira. <laughs> Mark, Mark Vieira is a, a manager based in LA. Um, he's really, he was the one who brought me out to LA initially. And, yeah. um, and he, he had cross check records, which, uh, would put out Boston beatdowns, the first street dogs record. And he's really still very tied in, tied into things with ringworm and a lot of bands still. Yeah. He, he really, um, he kind of like called me and, um, he was like, Hey, he has this, he has this thing called vitriol that I'm working with now. And, uh, he was like, Hey, look, like, um, these guys need some dates booked. Do you want to book it? And this is right before COVID's about to drop. So uh, I, I, by this point, I, I, before I get into that, so I moved to Portland and um, I started doing production for shows. Oh yeah. Fuck my bad. That's oh. actually way more important. That ties into this. My bad. Um, so doing production, I wish I would have done production as a, as a man, production manager before I became an agent. Uh, for those who don't know, production manager is the quarterback for the show happening, whether it's a big show, a small show, whatever. 
Um, and I loved doing production because bands would show up and uh, if it wasn't doing well, it's very black and white. It's like you're either doing business or you're not. Uh, I would always implore bands uh, now, be nice, be very nice. Because if you're not doing the business, I don't really got to do shit for you. Um, if you're selling shit out, I'll bend over backwards because I have to. But I, I've got so many bands that just live on Fantasy Island, show up. We need this and this and this and this. And I would literally just look around and go, dude, this is a 1500 cap room and there's 200 people here. What are you talking about? Like it would be more cost efficient for us to cancel the show at this point, you know? And I love production because I could be like that. I could be very straightforward about it and like would have bands be like, like I remember my favorite one was like band calling me being like, I'm going to call my agent. I was like, who's your agent? He's like agent, blah, 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 you know, without naming names. Cool. Yo, how about I call him? And I get my phone and I'd call him and I'd be like, Hey, here's what's going on. And then I'd hand the phone to the band and they just have this look on their face. Like, like, yeah, dude, like I know that dude. <laughs> like, and you know, the, the, I'd be like, yeah, your client here is being a fucking asshole. You know, I didn't do that move very often. I only did it once, but, uh, but production is a very black and white thing. So if you're in a band and you're touring, unless you are guaranteed selling tickets, be nice. <laughs> be nice. I don't have to do fuck all for you if you're not doing like real money. So I did production, loved it. I loved it. And um, I was about to make a move to a larger company uh, from the independent I was at. And then COVID dropped and, you know, it is what it is. So Mark Vieira calls me. Uh, and originally, when I was in this weird transition point between the independent and the bigger company for production, uh, he calls me and says, hey, can you be a favor and book Vitriol a West Coast tour? I was like, eh. And eventually he kind of wore me down because I, I have a soft spot for Mark and he's a good friend of mine. And I was like, yeah, I'll help you out. And he had told me, he's like, they had met with a bunch of agents and they just didn't like how it went. They were just kind of rubbed the wrong way. So uh, I booked it, COVID dropping, canceling it. And, um, and I looked at that as kind of like, oh, like I can still do this. You know, I still know how to do this. And, uh, I called a couple other agents, some close confidants, uh, Mr. Shapiro being one of them. And, and he was like, you know, he pointed something out to me. He said, he's like, when, when did you enjoy being an agent the most? And I was like, when I was on my own, when I was at death wish and when I was doing outliers. And he's like, that's when you were probably doing the best work. So why don't you just do that? And I was like, cool, that's a good idea. And he's like, be your own man, be your own boss. You know. So he really like kind of helped motivate me. And then it was just friends hitting me up. As soon as I kind of put the word out, um, and you put the word out, Joe. <laughs> uh, hey, I, I did I did snitch you out and tell some people that you're back in the game. <laughs> um, I uh, it was just friends, you know, like 95% of the bands I'm working with, artists I'm working with now, and they're all over the place. They're hardcore bands, metal bands, post punk bands. I got a, like a rapper, got a couple rappers. Um, they're all friends of mine. They're just the guys that needed help, people that were sick of their agents and fired them or got dropped because of COVID. And the way I do it is when you need me, you need me, and when you don't, you don't. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like you know, uh, every relationship's going to be different. Like, yeah, I could get you a support tour and then let's talk about it. You know, like, uh, do you, do you know these guys? Do you know this headliner? Cause the, the truth be told, if you're in a band and you go out with a support, a bigger band, that band can do whatever they want. 
Like they don't have to give you catering. They don't have to give you buyouts. They don't have to give you water. You, you just, they don't have to talk to you. Yeah, they don't have to talk to you. So, so I can contract you all day, but if that band maybe decides to take a reduction because the show didn't do well and maybe you're getting $100, guess what? You're getting 50 That's their – that is what's going to happen because their contract and their agreement supersedes yours. So I have to have re- realistic conversations with everybody. Oh, you got this offer. How did this happen? Oh, I hit them up on Facebook. Cool. So how do you want to handle this? You want me to contract it? Do you trust them? Do you know them? Do you know they'll take care of you? You know, because do you want to give me a thousand dollars for thirty minutes worth of work? You know, very, very realistic conversations. And bands think I'm like reinventing the wheel. I'm not. I'm just like I don't want to fucking sit here for a fucking hour and and contract a tour if, if you are friends with this band and they're going to take care of you. And the reason it got done is because you talked on Facebook. Like, you know, I wouldn't want to give me ten percent either. I tell me I would tell me to go fuck myself. So. You know, every relationship, every situation is different. And that's how it should be. That old school model shit isn't going to work. Especially, look at what we have now. You know, uh, I love referencing that Section Hate show. I love it. Uh, that, the one in the under overpass where 2,000 people showed up and the cops showed up and it was on the news and stuff. That shit was fucking awesome. Yeah, and they were shooting shit at the fucking <laughs> helicopter. <laughs> Well, like I, I had a bunch of like I'm still I'm still friends with plenty of guys that work in the industry and like and I have great relationships with them. I just now now I get to pick and choose who who I want to go to dinner with as opposed to being told I need to go to dinner with someone. But uh, I had a couple of them be like, "No, that's crazy. That's awesome." But, but but what's the point? What's this? What's that? Asking all these questions, and I just told them I was like, "Those guys just wanted to play a fucking awesome show. That's it. Nobody else needed to be involved." Like those guys just did their thing, you know, like that's how it should be. You know, when those, when the people who organize those kinds of events want outside input and outside help, they will reach out, not the other way around. And that's a good way to look at how you, everybody should be working with bands. Like, you know, I love using ringworm as an example. I did the math when I was booking initially, I made the most money with ringworm over a 10 year period. Because they were consistent. I worked with them in conjunction with their management to make sure that they never came home in a position that wouldn't allow them to tour for another six months. And like, and when I look at the long-term game, like that benefited me, that benefited them, that benefited their management. And that's how that should have been. And I should have taken that path with a lot of bands, not just hardcore bands, but bands in general to make sure that they can keep their career going. They can continue to build because how this works is if you slow down, if you stop for a brief second, you start to lose a little bit of that momentum. You start to lose that incline. And, you know, terror is a great example of that. You know, terror is always on the road. They're always working because they're a band built for the live experience. You know, like all the other stuff, it doesn't matter. Like touring and, and hitting the road will never that will never not be the, what makes the impact. Like people will be like, well, they, absolutely. Yeah. Like when people bring up like the Spotify thing, like they're like, well, shy, you know, like, like someone be like, well, they got blah, 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 Spotify numbers or followers or whatever. That's great. Yo, shy Lude has probably like $150,000, uh, 50,000 followers. But if they play Portland tomorrow and I love those guys and I love Matt Fox, I love shy Lude. But if they play Portland tomorrow, 20 fucking people will show up. It's like, I'm in the team. Yeah, they're they're not a band that's drawing that. Yeah, I'm in a t- I'm in the ticket game. I'm not in the Spotify game, you know. And I think COVID kind of kind of showed that. 
like showed like now, now with shows coming back, you're starting to see the bands that stuck, you know. And so now with with bands, I just I work with them, you know. I work with them in every situation and keep them on the road. And that that might upset a couple people in the industry the way I'm doing business, but like they aren't, you know. They're they're not here with me, and they're not in the in, in the van with those bands, and they're not there like slugging it out and working. They are, you know, they're doing their thing, and I'll do my thing, and every once in a while we'll work together, and every once in a while we won't. Fucking right. Um, obviously, I know you have a limited time window here, and you have successfully created a podcast episode that is the closest to staying on time in the history, the one year history of this podcast. <laughs> and we pre-gamed this. You said, this is the amount of time I have. And you managed to get from point A to point B. Cause I said to you, Hey, we might have to do a part two if this goes long. So I congratulate you and keep it on succinct. We're going to do a couple quick ones and I'm going to get you the fuck out of here. And then I got to bring you back and we're going to do it. We got to do a whole how to, or we got to do an instructional episode. Cause this would be, we, there's so many things to still talk about. Number one, when I listen to all this, it's hard because I was there for so much of it. And I'm lucky to call you a friend. I'm lucky to have spent so much time hearing your perspective over the years. And the thing that still sticks with me is the fact that you and I both share a lot of the same ideas and principles. Like, you know, you know why I book shows, you know why I put on this is hardcore. You know why I'm still a union cement mason instead of being a full-time promoter, you know? And, and, I wonder how many times in your life where you were saying earlier, you know, I can always go back to land block where you, you meet people in this, in this stupid, I hate the, I don't, I don't believe I'm, I think I'm a, I like the term when you said you didn't like the name outlier. And I still think you are an outlier. So I know when you said you didn't like the name, like it is an outlier thing because so many people tomorrow want to write on the internet that they're a part of the music industry. And I'm not a part of the music industry. I'm a fucking hardcore kid and I'm a promoter, but I don't want to be in the industry because I feel like the industry creates carbon copy, stupid things that we don't always need. And I don't think that's that case for you. I think that you've organically built yourself. So number one, I wanted to congratulate you on sticking to ethics and acknowledging where you went a shy of things that you would normally do. Cause you're like, Hey, I was just following what everyone else is up to. And this didn't work. And you're always learning. And you're learning from your lessons. You're learning from all these things. It's an incredible thing. And I and it's something I've watched with you. And it's why I'm so excited for you to come back with this like completely renewed vigor for doing it. And with the perspective now of the production. But I wonder if with all the things that you passed up, is there the what's the one thing that you wish you would have kept if you would have kept anything going? when you took your time off and did the production, if there was one band you would have stayed working with, uh, black breath, uh, that band is just incredible. Uh, I'm very, very, I was very close to them. They were one of the earliest bands I worked with. And I would, I wish my, my one regret was from leaving was I, when I quit black breath stopped and I realized that I was the one kind of pushing that rock up the hill. Um, because they were a very conflicted band. And I think a piece of me knew it was like, once I stop booking, this band's going to stop doing stuff. And was, that's a real bummer because they were, they're incredible records, incredible live and really, really solid people. And um, it's unfortunate that they are still not active. And I don't know if they ever will be active since uh, they lost a member recently. In the entire time, what's the one band 
that you knew, or not to say that you knew, but you later just come to realize that it just wasn't working, and you kind of had to feel bad to 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 say, "Hey, I, we can't do this" or something like. Is there one time where, no matter what you did, it just didn't work for a band? Mother of Mercy. Was that it? Yeah, I didn't know there was another one. Um. Yeah, they, that that man, that band is just so fucking great, and and it's just, you know, I, I always try and remind bands like, look, like all the stuff in the world, all the best tours, um, you can do literally everything the right way, and it just doesn't stick, and it's just not time. And I think Mother Mercy were a great example of that. Like, you know, the records are incredible, great fucking dudes, and um, yeah, like it was just so frustrating working with them because I knew I, I felt like everybody should have been losing their shit for them. No, there, I think that that's the fucked up thing is there's bands that come and if they're, I mean, regionally here, they were loved, but you know, something that stuck with me is the fact that those guys toured together with foundation. But then now, if you talk about foundation now, people are like, this is one of the greatest bands, but you know, full well that they were not supported a lot. And a lot of this stuff that I'm going to ask you, how fucked up is it to see stuff like have heart and foundation now be really reveled when you being under the hood with some of these bands and you didn't see the same kind of uh, support while the band was active. It's an, it's annoying in the sense that like, I think I I mentioned this the other day with someone that that people like to romanticize the old days uh, and bands like coming up and they're like, you know, when they when they talk about you know bands like you know Foundation and, and Have Heart, I mean those bands earned it and worked. It's just unfortunate that like those bands broke up because they couldn't they couldn't continue to to be active. You know, monetarily speaking, it's just exhausting. There there's a funny story that Mark Fierra told me once, where at the last Reach the Sky show, uh, some girl screams out, uh, "Don't break up!" and Ian Larrabee goes well this many people it was a sold out show at palladium 2500 tickets well if this many people would have came to our shows when we were touring we wouldn't be breaking up you know like i think i, I think the biggest thing i would i would want to echo to people is go out and see bands you know it's fucking it's like i said it's blue collar work it's hard work and if if you like a band and they come to town go fucking see them and buy some fucking merch because there's there there is no guarantee they're going to be there and if you want them to continue to be a band and you want them to continue to to be available for you to listen to and go see live um do your part to try and continue that i guess that's what i'm trying to say (laughs) i'm going to do the thing i said this whole entire podcast and we're going to bring you back on and we're going to do a whole ethics and ideas and i've been meaning to do tutorials I think it'd be a cool episode. We run down like the how to's and maybe break out the fucking video for it or figure out a cool way to get involved so people can understand what we're talking about here, but I don't want to hold you any longer. Um, Give the formal salutation. Thank yous, whatever you want to do. If you want to drop some socials and just again, before you say that, just thank you for the years of friendship. Thank you for all the hard work and a lot of this, that were talked about. He glanced over so much to get this in two hours. And I got, God bless you for keeping on time. Um, just thank you. I'm glad you're back in the world. I, I really missed this simple phone call. We'll get this together. Andy Rice, 
deal, the non, the no bullshit. Let's just get this fucking job, this show done. And I, I think hardcore now needs more people like you than ever fucking before. And um, I'm glad you're back, buddy. Yo, thank you so much, and thanks, thanks for being uh, like, you know, my a confidant, you know, and like you were one of the first people to really, you know, reach out, you know, when I when I quit and check in on me, you know, in the years when I was when I was uh di- when I disappeared and and I didn't that didn't go unnoticed. I really appreciate it, and thanks again for all the help over the years and advice. Um, do you have socials you want me to pop or just leave everything else so no one can bother you? Um, no, I like booking agents don't need social media and they, they definitely don't need logos on ad mats. <laughs> awesome, man. Um, well, we're going to get together on the, uh, tutorial podcast. Um, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for all the things that you did to get hardcore through a tumultuous time in the late two thousands and through <laughs> some of the, highest high water marks of the mid two thousands. And hopefully you'll, um, hopefully you'll be here to, uh, shepherd in a new decade and get some bands really to where they need to go without a lot of the bullshit that is now completely encumbering and limiting what hardcore shows and packages and bands outside of hardcore. Cause you do work with plenty of bands and metal and hip hop and whatever. So thank you buddy. And, um, we'll get, this up and rolling i'm very excited for you and uh can't wait to see what comes in the future man thanks thanks again for having me take care take now next week it's a toss-up i've recorded a couple i've got some still in the works so in my head as I'm recording this outro. I don't actually know who's going to be the next guest, but I got a couple. We're going to see what syncs up and makes most sense. Just uh, next couple weeks, we're going to delve into some West Coast figures of importance and people that have been referenced on the show and hopefully uh, give some shine to people that we love from out that way. Hope you enjoyed Andy's story. It's absolutely fucking fantastic. Make sure you go to fastbreakrecords.com not just because they're our boys, but because they just released the Z9 and the MH Chaos vinyl, which by the time you're listening, there's probably no more MH Chaos vinyl left. And um, the releases come out October 29th. Very happy to see a PA hardcore label putting out new stuff. And like I said, as uh, Wisdom and Chains looks like they're winding down, it's good to see some of the guys like Richie and them get involved with the new project Z9. And um, for those of you who are going, wait, Wisdom and Chains? I can always say that if your ass really wants to see Wisdom and Chains again, the only place you're going to see them right now is October 30th in Salt Lake City. And I don't think that's going to change for quite some time. So buy a ticket, check them out, or support Z9. Get the fucking record. Check them out at Z9 Band, FastBreakRecords.com. And um, also, again, PhillyHCShows.com. But more than just our shit, support everybody. Um, big shout-outs to anyone doing anything half-decent. We always drop Carter's name in the mix. We always drop our boy Lumpy and Dave Style in the mix. And, Joe, just shout-out dudes like John Scanlon, Long Island. Dude's fucking killing it. You know, um, I can't wait till we get this West Coast stuff done. We're going to sync back up with our boy Chris Bridge 9, who, man, things a lot of things have changed for him since... Uh, 
episode one, and I'm, we're going to get back to him. Um, big shout-out to Sonny, who did a video collage of different video um, highlights, you'd say, being meshed into Tom Morello from a, a Rage Against the Machine, his project band. It's an accolade under Sonny's belt to work out anything with you know his absolute all-time heroes, Rage Against the Machine. So it's great to see people in hardcore kicking ass and moving forward. Also, if you enjoyed the Norm Brandon episode, go check out Thursday. Norm Brandon is playing guitar for Thursday. I'm going to go out to Reading and check him out. Say what's up to everybody. Thank you to everyone who continues to support. Thank you for a couple new Patreons. Once I'm back from the Midwest, we've got a schedule. we got a plan. New releases, new rule of three, tons of Patreon shit. Things are back. So thank you for the support. Take care.